Welcome to the Jeff Gross Podcast. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Party Poker. Go to PartyPoker.com to play tournaments, cash games, and improve your poker game. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear all of my future episodes. All right. Welcome, everyone. We have another very special podcast. Good buddy of mine, Tom Marchese. He is in the house known as King of Cards. Tom, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, this is a, this is a treat. You know, it's a, it's good to catch up. I think the last time we saw each other and, and really got to speak was, I guess, December of last year. Uh, that was uh, during the Bellagio time. There was a, the 10K. I came over, got kind of got hooked on some of your cards, ended up, ended up firing and buying a, a pack. And, and obviously the market's done well. And it's, it's been an exciting time for, uh, for sports cards. I mean, a lot to cover. Why don't we just start with, with the sports cards? Because I know you and I are both super into it. Uh, tell me a little bit about your, your background in, in sports cards and what uh, you have a store and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So just to start, I, um, I like a lot of people who are our age was start collecting sports cards when I was a kid. You know, you go to the store, your parents buy you a couple packs, things like that yep. back in the mid nineties. And then five or six years ago, I kind of just stumbled into a card store, a card store that I now actually own in Las Vegas. And um, yeah, got back into collecting and yeah, I just love it. You know, I like opening cards. I like the investment aspect of it. And then Two years ago, I actually purchased a brick and mortar store in Las Vegas called Legacy Sports Cards, where the previous owner was just ready to get out. And I thought it was a good business in an industry that was about to get a lot bigger. And yeah, here I am now. I spend a lot of my day to day like um, working there and kind of just uh, keeping track of the business and keeping it running smoothly. That's awesome. I, I got to say, like, I, I saw the, you know, the, the coffee breakers, you see Dan Fleshman, who's kind of mixed into the poker world a bit, Steve Aoki, they're getting really into it. They did a big shop in LA. I know your store, uh, you, you, I guess you're moving or maybe getting a new one, but do you see this like coming? Do you think this is going to be a thing now where there's actually a lot of brick and mortar start popping up? You think it's that got that much juice and legs behind this current boom in the sports card world? It's, it's definitely possible. I mean, in LA, I know there's like 30 or 40 different stores. There's just tons of businesses and whatnot. In Vegas, until recently, we were the only, we were really the only store in all of Vegas. Now there's two or three other ones on the way. But yeah, I mean, there's a decent barrier to entry just because sports cards are so popular right now. It's really difficult to actually get the product, like get the boxes, get the singles, get on the packs, like things like that. So yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are going to try to open up stores as like the business becomes more popular, but it's definitely a lot easier for people to do more of like the online breaker breaking kind of like what Dan and coffee breakers are doing versus having like a brick and mortar location where most of your sales are through that. Yeah. Talk to me a bit about this store that you bought then. So you, how did that even come about? You know, you've had such a a successful poker career. You've uh, we'll we'll cover that and go through your results and, and, and your, your career, but uh, the sports card stuff, like how did that, was that like a thing you wanted to buy or did like you, how did that, it's just kind of random. Like this guy happened to have a like brick and mortar store. And then how did that come up that you wanted to buy it? Like, were you interested or did he, did he like mention it or how did, how did that go down and how did you negotiate that? Cause that's, that seems kind of kind of a hard thing to negotiate, right? A lot of cards, a lot of different prices. How do you sort of uh, package that deal? For sure. I mean, what happened was I had an online breaking company with a friend of mine three or four years ago mm-hmm. that we had started. And then Jared Blesnick, who's a different friend of mine, he has a really large breaking company, The Blez. So yeah. he actually knew the owner of Legacy Sports Cards. And the guy said like, hey, I'm looking to get out. I'm looking to sell. So then me and Jared were friends and Jared kind of just brought me in on the deal. And 
I mean, it went smoothly. The guy was very generous in like the offer he made us to sell the business. So we just took over the existing business, bought it. We still have all the same employees, the same general infrastructure, and we've tried to make some changes to maximize it. But really, we were just so fortunate that our timing was just amazing for it. Because if you look, the growth in sports cards and collectibles over the last couple of years is just insane. Yeah, it is. It's I, I you know I same exact thing as you where I collected as a kid. I think you know I see you were you were born I think exact, about a year uh eighty seven yeah eighty seven I was September eighty six or September eighty seven so we were collecting the basically same stuff probably like the eighty you know the not early nineties Fleer Fleer Ultra like me basketball and a lot of that stuff yeah. is uh you know, didn't really do that well, or it just was not the right era, the right, you know, kind of really valuable stuff. Of course, you go into like 86, the Fleer, Jordan, that, that whole set did really well. And maybe you got some of that, but uh, it's just, it's interesting to see a kickback this much. Did you ever imagine when you bought the store, was it more just like a passion and hobby? You thought there was some upside or, or could you ever imagine looking at it right now that it's, it's like, cause it does feel like it's just flying. Like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's going really fast. Right now. Yeah, I never expected it to turn into this. I mean, I did think there was some short-term upside just because you look at some of these talents that are com- were coming into the different leagues. Like, you figure sports cards are very rookie-driven. So it's having somebody like Zion Williamson, who's so popular, mm-hmm. is, is just massive for collectibles overall. And having LeBron move to L.A., where it's such a big market, and that's going to just bring more popularity because people are going to want to have collectibles – of LeBron and Lakers uniforms or like Joe Burrow and Tua. You just look, you like go down the line. It's like, there's been the year to year. It's just so rookie driven. And we've been very fortunate to just have these amazing rookie classes like over and over again. Like you look at it really what propelled the basketball market is the fact that somebody like Luka Doncic is such an amazing player. So people who were just getting back into it last year were buying his cards a year and a half ago. And now those cards are worth 15 times as much because he's such a talent. Yeah. It, uh, you know, it is kind of right place, right time. Also there's, there's a lot of, I I'm noticing sort of influencers, you know, you could, you could name names of, of people that are getting involved and, you know, like the Darren Ravels and, uh, Gary V's, the Josh Luber stock X, this type of stuff. Like there's a lot of, uh, it seems like business related people are started really pushing it and getting into it, which I think would, you know, it does help as well. But uh, I also just like technology and sports gambling, you know, the sports betting at a legal federal level, like this all kind of seems to tie into, you know, in my opinion, it just seems like it's a, uh, it just seems like it's all kind of connecting. Also, technology, because back in the day, were you were you the Beckett school? Would you get the magazines of Beckett? Yeah, like Beckett. I think the other one was Tough Stuff, maybe it was called. But yeah, but yeah, yeah. like you base all your pricing off of that. So. Yeah, and now it's online, right? Now, like there's StockX and there's these quick things you can see, and then maybe blockchain can come tie into it where you can see the prices of cards. And you know, I don't know if there's the play on that. And it just seems like a lot more data and people love, uh, you know, that, uh, that aspect of it, like almost like stock and trading and where it goes. And it's just sort of real time data. I think that all is going to push. Uh, do you, would you see like franchise in your store? Do you want to open more? Is this just one, a full enough project at the moment? Um, no, one's enough for me. It's like the big thing with owning a business in like this industry is that, you look at it, there's so much demand in the industry, but there's a limited amount of products made for for like each release. So if you look at like the biggest releases, like Prism Football just came out, and this would be viewed as the biggest football release of the year. And the thing is, there's only so much product to go around. So if you open up a new store, you're just not really going to be able to get the product in mm-hmm. order to 
I mean, just uh, fulfill the needs of your customer base. So right now I'm kind of in a sweet spot where it's like the amount of product I'm able to get is swallowed up by my customer base. And it's like a good equilibrium. So at least for me, I wouldn't really be looking to expand to additional stores. But right now I'm just... Currently, we have a store that might be is about 1,400 square feet. And we're moving into a storefront that's about double the size. So we're going more of the route of having like a superstore that really offers everything that any customers will need versus like franchising it out and opening up like two or three stores throughout the Valley or through those. And, and uh, do you, do you believe uh, that the, you know, there's talks, this could be a fad. This could be, it's sort of like Bitcoin too, in my opinion, where it depends on point of entry and also depends on what you're, what kind of information you're seeing. You know, I believe in it because I feel it. I see it sort of like daily fantasy. You know, you saw like DraftKings back in the day, right? Like at the, 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 it was like one of the, I think poker players were, it was kind of the first people to see it where it was like DraftKings were at the stops. They had their boosts, you know, all like our friends, our, our generation, everyone's playing. They got boards. They're going and doing live drafts with their friends. People are be- like, it just felt right. Like it was so obvious to me, Bitcoin as well, crypto, like so yeah. obvious The use cases, like we're kind of in it. And I also just feel this way. What would you say to someone that says like, Oh, this is a fad, you know, cards have died. There was like a 20 year, cause it did take a hiatus. Like around when we collected for a decade or two, it was pretty slow or almost non-existent. Only like the really hardcore, you know, niche, like guys like Jason Koontz with Otia, you know, guys like this guy who has a, you know, the sports card shop owners going to the national, there was like a core, like a very small passionate group and it's really expanding. So how would you defend against the statement? Oh, this is a fad or this is going to be a bubble. Um, I mean, I'd say it's, it's definitely a possibility, but it's one of those things where it's, it's just very difficult to predict. And at least personally, I, I think it's one of those things kind of if you look back at, say, poker, when poker boomed after Moneymaker, there was a peak at some point. Like If you look, it's like, OK, the peak for like poker overall might have been five years ago or it might have been you know, like some, even now it has come down from the peak a little bit. It's still your industry than it was maker so that's the thing and it's really it's really impossible to predict like when something's going to peak but it's like yeah it's we could be at the peak we could be five years from the peak but regardless i think that the popularity of it and also just like the culture where now there's like this flipping culture and this idea of like alternate investments being up will keep the sports card industry at least somewhat popular down the line even if it's not quite as popular as it is currently yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I'm I'm obsessed with it. I honestly have. I I just remember coming to your house and I I I, uh, I was looking at it and I was basically like telling me how much I think uh, Lucky Chewy was there and I was like saying I was just like oh how much and you like brought out a whole box. I ended up just like taking pretty much all of it, which you know, that box has has done done well. And I mean, I I know you have a ton of inventory and and I just. I want to buy more, man. So set me aside, Tom. I want you to, you know, just set me aside another box full. I'm ready to, I'm ready to fire. And I got to check out the new location. Tell us where it is now, your store, and where is it moving to? Our current store, it's, it's about five miles west of the Strip on Sahara. Like the major cross streets would be Sahara and Buffalo for people who know Vegas well. And then the store is moving to the intersection of Fort Apache and Flamingo. So... It's probably it's about six or seven miles down Flamingo from the Rio. It's it's very sweet, man. I, and I and I think to your point too, like PSA, the the main grading company just sold for seven hundred million. I think yeah. that also shows sort of the willingness and the the excitement in it that it, you know big markets and that 
people believe in it. I know PSA, like from the information I get, how long does it take you to send cards to get graded uh, now? Um, like, like what's your full, like you must have contacts in the industry as well. With, like, no, they, they don't really do anything as far as contacts or like hookups or things like that, which I mean, I think it's a good thing because you really just have to trust them to be doing the right thing. But yeah, I mean, you're really looking at, if you're going to want to pay $15 a card to get great, get your cards graded, you're looking at a six month turnaround time from the time they get them to the time you get them back. But then it's like, yeah, if you feel like paying, if you feel that you have a very valuable card, you could pay $75 and you'll have a couple of weeks. Have you had any experiences of lost cards or any kind of craziness where like something doesn't get sex? I mean, I just think this just by the nature of volume and doing it, something would happen. And I mean, it's gotta be a little nerve wracking to ship off like a, a high value card or something. I guess you put security on it or do some extra stuff, but have you had any experiences uh, with, with that, with any problems? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, early on when I took over this business, we would send in cards for customers and we sent in a package for customers that had probably about $10,000 in cards with inside of it with some of it being the stores and some of it being customers. And yeah, the package just disappeared and was lost. And at the time it was an oversight by us. We didn't insure the package. So yeah, we just ended up having to eat the loss. So that is kind of a scary part. You send out these collectibles and you're looking at a three by five inch or whatever the size is three by four inch piece of paper that might be worth thousands of dollars. And it's like, yeah, this is something that's easy to steal and is fairly liquid. So it's definitely always a worry and it kind of, it's always smart to just make sure to insure your packages and try to send in the safest way possible. And, and yeah, I guess with like your business as well, people know, or, you know, the, the, the mail and where it's going in the store, like that, that would be a little concern to me. If you like, especially when you're getting stuff back all the time that, that would, you know, it's kind of like people know, or the, the they would know that that's like going to your store and it's their card. So I would, I would think that would be a, a bit of a, a worry, but obviously yeah, insurance. And, you know, you just, you just got to, it's part of the, uh, part of the, part of the risk. I do, uh, I do believe that cards are, you know, it's also sort of segueing and you're seeing the Pokemon stuff and all these other types of things. Do you, do you, do you focus just on um, a specific sports or, or sports cards or do you, do you do any sort of like video games and the, the vintage and old sports tickets and memorabilia or what's your, your, your primary focus there? Um, we sell, we sell memorabilia as well. And then we also sell Pokemon cards, which I mean, Pokemon cards, actually, if you look back to our childhood, if you like are looking for the cards that are really worth a lot from the nineties, it really ends up being these rare inserts and that ends up being Kobe rookie cards. And then outside of that, all the early Pokemon cards have actually uh, really appreciated in value. I mean, you kind of see it with, I think it was Jake Paul did the box opening for a $200,000 box and did Steve Aoki, maybe he opened a Pokemon box as well. So it's kind of nuts. Like Pokemon has really uh, blown up and that might be Pokemon might actually be the hottest uh, card thing on the market right now. Yeah. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot about that. I never got into that, but I know that that is a, that definitely some big money there. And, and what about unopened boxes? Like I you know, look at it kind of like wine, you know, you just like, do you do that? Do you hold some boxes where every time every year and or do you do that now? Did you used to do that where you will hold some, some boxes to just keep for a long time? Cause those yeah, I, I, I do that personally. Um, like outside of the business, I, I invest in the sealed boxes because what ends up happening is if you, inv- if you decide to invest in an individual player, like say you decide to invest in Zion, mm-hmm. if Zion doesn't work out, you lose. But if you invest in the sealed boxes, it gives you the opportunity where it's like, okay, if Tyler Hero works out or if John Morant works out, the sealed boxes can still go up in value. So for me personally, many of my investments are in 
sealed boxes. And at this stage, I actually have a fair bit more money in sealed boxes than I do in actual like single cards. Very interesting. Can you give uh, any any uh, range or, or a couple maybe names or cards of players who, that you're, are your most prized possessions for you personally and or your store, whether it's value or just your favorite cards for whatever reason? Um, yeah, my favorite and maybe most valuable card right now is I have an autograph card that's signed by Jordan, Rodman, and Pippen, like all three of them. And kind of a backstory on that, it's like, you figure it's a popular combo in itself. And then what ended up happening down the line is Jordan disliked Pippen so much that he just refused to sign anything down the, that Pippen would sign. So if you go back, there's very few cards that are signed by this combo of three players because he would just refuse to sign something that like Pippen had already signed. Really? But then is, if, you, if you look at it also, it's like Jordan and LeBron, they're, they are for a company. They're an exclusive with Upper Deck, which is a company that doesn't release basketball cards anymore. Yeah. So it's very difficult to get like a Jordan or LeBron, LeBron autograph these days because none have really come out in 10 years. So that's it. Both of those statements are interesting. So I didn't realize. So is there any Jordan LeBron? Is there like a special Jordan LeBron card that has like autographed? I would imagine then. Or yeah, they're out there as well. I, I mean, it's just one of those things where they dry up and high end collectors kind of buy them and stash them away. So it's like, yeah, if you're looking for a Jordan and LeBron card where they're both wearing NBA uniforms, the last time one would have come out would have been 2009. So those cards at this stage are going to be going for like $10,000 or more. And, you know, obviously I'm sure the last dance that those are three main, main characters from that, that amazing series. Uh, that was a uh, very well done in my opinion. I think most yeah. people would utter that sentiment, but um, I, I, how much did that go up? Cause it did seem like from my the people I spoke to in the card industry were very worried around COVID time. Like things were, you know, the, like these are the type of things when uh, 2008 or major economic things in general go poorly. I think people kind of realize sports cards are one of those things that it's not like the necessarily the first thing people are going to be buying more of, but it seems to have sort of the reverse effect and, and things sort of shot up. It's right around the last dance came out as well. What did you notice about uh, COVID in the industry? And also how do you think the last dance, do you think that actually had an impact directly on the industry? Well, the, the last dance definitely had an impact on Michael Jordan prices. Cause you figure what happens is so many people are watching this last dance and they're like, wow, Jordan is so iconic. I want to have some sort of a piece, whether it's a signed basketball Jersey or a signed 16 by 20 photo or a sports card. So everybody just wants to like pick up something that was Jordan after that. So you figure much of cards is, is a supply and demand thing. So yeah, that definitely drew up, like um, drove up Jordan prices quite a bit. I mean, you could see it, or like the Jordan rookie card, which would be viewed as an iconic card. Like that card appreciated quite a bit in price around the last dance. And, and then as far as COVID and the impact on sports cards, really what happened there was one, so many of the printing facilities were shut down for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. So there, were, there, there was all this demand, but there were no new cards being printed. So then the existing supply of like boxes and singles and packs just gets bought up and it's once again supply and demand and drives the prices up and the other thing you look at is during covid it's like all this money that would normally be spent on other things where it'd be spent on like travel or dining out or sports betting like all this stuff like people weren't able to spend on those things so instead a lot of that money flowed into sports cards and actually it actually helped the market quite a bit because really it, is, it is entertainment. It's like, if you look, you could go in online and you could have somebody open a box for you, or you could be in a chat room where everybody gets a card or two from a box. 
And there's kind of a sense of like community there. So it's like when everybody was stuck at home, it actually, yeah, it just really drove the prices upward. Um, really that that's uh man, that's interesting. I didn't even think about that specifically that people were, yeah, they were spending on alternative stuff and, and wanting to gamble if when the, there was no sports and, and, and that sort of, uh, that did drive in there. What, yeah. uh, what, it, so I didn't hear that about Pip and I kind of, I didn't realize that, I, I realized they weren't like buddy, buddy, but I didn't know they actually had a, had a beef and I didn't, I don't think I heard, I have heard that before. So what they like Jordan, what, what, what's his thing with Pippen then? Cause I mean, that's kind of his Batman and Robin, right? I mean, like they, they got it done together, but like, what was the actual context behind that? Oh, I think that's just something that was generally known where Jordan and Pippen didn't get along that well, especially late in their careers. So if you're looking at it, during the time period where like autograph cards were getting popular, it was fairly late in Jordan's career because Jordan didn't have a bunch of autographs until after his playing days in the 2000s. So, so yeah, I mean, it really is just something where if you just look for cards that are signed by both Jordan and Pippen, there aren't a whole lot of them. And if you look by, at cards that are signed by Jordan, Pippen, and Rodman, like that trio, I think there's only 25 copies. There's like one card that was numbered out of 15 and one card that's numbered out of 10 that were signed by, by them. So, oh. so it's just like, yeah, the rarity just like drives up the price and also drives up. I don't know. I mean, it feels like a, a what nice is that? What do those cards go for? I've, ne- I've never seen that card or heard of it. Is it, is it graded? I mean, it's the same thing, big scale. But I, mean, I actually just recent. I actually am waiting to get it back from PSA. It recently graded a PSA nine, but I'd guess it might be worth forty thousand or something like that at this stage. Pretty. That's pretty sweet. Uh, and I, I don't. I, I am so interested in sports cards, and I love that you're uh, have a store and are so deep into it, and understand so much about it. I don't want to spend the uh, poker. We'll talk about a lot of stuff, but the last yeah. thing I do want to ask about is the security in cards. What do you believe are the biggest problems? Because this, I know there was a there was some in the '90s, early 2000s. There was a counterfeiter, maybe famously or infamous, someone that did yeah. really made a lot of counterfeits and put a really bad, um, you know, it left a bad stigma in the industry. You know, nowadays I. I look at it like casino chips. There's, there's going to be like ways to be more secure, but it's always a cat and mouse, right? Just like anything there's counterfeits. There's, you know, now there's computer printing. So what do you think are some of the biggest obstacles in, in engaging this? And what do you think a solution would be moving forward to make stuff that people know they're getting the real thing? Um, really? I mean, that's part of the reason why grading has uh, turned into such a thing for people who like don't know that much about cards. Grading is like you send the card into a company and they check the authenticity of the card, and then they give it a grade on a one to 10 scale off of the condition of the card. So I think it's just, yeah, there's still a big issue with um, counterfeits and also altering of cards where it's like, hey, this card has a bad corner. So somebody will try to cut off a small piece of the corner. So the corner is sharp. So it appears to be in better condition. So really, I think what we're going to be looking at in the future is computerized grading, where it's just like very accurate where the grade that's assigned instead of being by like a human, where there's going to be some variation and some errors and like cards missed. I think you're going to be looking at computerized grading where it's like the card is measured very precisely and graded very precisely. So that way people will know that they're getting the real thing. Very interesting. Uh, and, and is it, is this something you've had, do you see this like when people bring cards into you or do you notice, do you feel like there's a fair amount of this going on where there's sort of uh, stuff that, that isn't right? Or is it is it really cleaned up a lot, in your opinion, recently? Um, with cards, it's actually not that bad. The say for people to be most careful is with memorabilia. Because unfortunately, we do see so many people come in on a week-to-week basis where it's like, oh, here I have this signed Tom Brady base, or football, or I have, like, here's a Mickey Mantle signed ball. And the problem is, 
is that so much memorabilia is faked where the signatures are faked. And there's so many companies out there that are providing certificates of authenticity that don't really. So I just say specifically with memorabilia, you want to be very careful and like who you buy from and you want to make sure that's been authenticated by a major company where there's only really three or four companies that I would trust. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I think that is one of those things where, yeah, I, I can imagine there's a lot of that's unfortunate too, especially like eBay and these type of things. Like you want to make sure you're buying from someone who's really trusted and and known or a Skoda store, brick and mortar, have a good contact. Cause you know, that is, uh, I'm sure that that it's a, it's a large amount of counterfeit, but I mean, there can be, and that's especially memorabilia. I think that's, uh, yeah, exactly. careful on uh okay well if we maybe get some more sports card questions i know yeah. we, uh, on, on twitter we've got uh, a giveaway if you guys want to enter for 111 dollar ticket courtesy of party poker party poker has been kind to tom i know tom won the the, the yeah. in Vegas, uh for uh for a million dollars the the five million guaranteed i believe we just shipped it for first no big deal we'll cover that yeah. as well but uh we are going to give away a 111 dollar ticket so if you guys want to ask a question we'll try to get to that we'll get to as many as we can we'll scroll through that towards the end but that is over on Twitter at the pinned tweet. Uh, in the meantime, Tom and I are going to run through and talk about his career and life and, and just give me a little bit of this, uh, this beautiful 19 million career you got. You started back in the day. It is kind of interesting. I think 97% of the, the poker guests on the show final table, their first live event. So you, you're no different. You went, you went, you went top three podium in your backyard. You grew up in uh, Parsippany, New Jersey, and here you go at the Borgata 2010. Uh, what are you, like 20, uh, what? 22? Oh, 22. 22. Come right in, and you you go there. Uh, Mr. Madsen gets this done. Man, I forget how many things he's won. He's won yeah. a couple of WSLP bracelets. He, was this an actual WPT, or was it not? A no, WPT? it was a winter poker open or something it was called. Okay, but, pretty much in line with the 3300, the same format, WPT, same buy-in, big field, yeah. take third. Tell me about this. What's going on in your life at this moment in your poker career? Um, I mean, at that point, I was already a established online player where I was I was playing 2550 and then up to 200, 400 games on first came out those games. So back in 2008, I dropped out of college. At the time, I was 1020, up to 1020 to limit cash game. And then, yeah, but from that stretch, I think I had just moved to Vegas in 2010 and I was in a poker house with some friends and yeah, I was giving live, live poker tournaments a try just because I was, I was bored and I was kind of always somebody who could grind from anywhere. I didn't require like a really good setup or anything like that. Like I mostly just played six tables on a lap and was able to have decent focus. Yeah, it was something I was doing for fun and I think I actually went something like 30 in lines to start. I just like didn't really care and was like drinking during them and not taking them seriously. And then, yeah, at the start of 2010, I mean, I was fortunate to have a couple deep runs and run. And, and how, how, how was it? Had you played any really live before? Is that like your legit first ever tournament? Did you not cash a couple or did you just like show up and you're like, Oh, I'm going to try live poker today. And bam, you got third. Uh, oh no, that's how- what I'm saying. I had already played um, a fair of like live tournaments and bricked them off. Because ah, okay. Okay. Yeah, I think it was 22 by then. So I'm trying to think, like, I remember one of the first live tournaments I played was I played, there was a 40th anniversary tournament at the world series of poker. It was like 40, mm-hmm. yes. which was huge at the time. Like that wasn't, that wasn't really a thing that was going on. You know, like high rollers weren't, weren't really around like that. Yeah. So I had played, I think that winter open was probably a year into me 
five tournaments. It was it happened to my first cast. There's a good chance that that tournament just got me overall on live tournaments, like up until that stretch. Yeah. And, and, and so were you, so then were you, you home? I guess this is end of January, 2010. You're from Jersey. Were you back home for the holidays and just stayed out there and played that? Or did you, did you fly, were you flying back from Vegas uh, to, to, did you fly to go play this specifically? Um, yeah, I think I was pro- I think I was in Jersey at the time for that is really what happened. So a bit after that, then I was, I was living out in Vegas with a couple friends for like the end of 2010. And that's when I had like the big run of all these live tournaments. And I was kind of just like a traveling live pro going to all these different WPTs. Yeah. By 2010 in Vegas for the most part, full time. Okay. And then you, so you take third, it's January. And then a few weeks later, uh, not even literally three weeks later, you go to, I remember these NAPTs. I think it was when you got second or no, that, oh no, I thought it was Vanessa Selps one, but no, it's not Sam Stein. You get heads up, you, you go there and there's also a pretty big field and you get uh first place for 827,000. What was this yeah. like? How did this feel? Uh, did you have your family there? Were friends there at this one as well? I mean, this is like a, this is the significant yeah. score. What, what was this like? Yeah. I mean, I, I and I mean, that was definitely like a career defining win at the time. You know, it's like you get this infusion of money, huge in terms of your ability to play a bigger game, play whatever you want. So, so yeah, I mean, that was, that's definitely the score that I look back on where it's like, wow, like this really me to being able to play like, Oh, now I can play all these high rollers. I could play 200, 400, no limit. Like while before these were kind of, fringe games that I could afford to play. It's like at that point, now I can actually afford to play really big. And I mean, that's kind of a common thing in people's poker crew getting lucky early on. So then you have the bankroll where you could afford wise on your skill level is so important. Wise it's like, Hey, you might be one of the best players in the world, but you need to try to grind up two or $3 million to be able to play 200, 400 in a really soft game. Even if you're the best player at 10, 20, it's going to take you years. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is, this is uh, this is something that I think it's kind of hard to understand. And you look at over the years and you could name a dozen players, you know, yourself kind of included or, or guys like, uh, you know, take Dan Coleman, Justin Bonomo, Fedor Holtz, these guys that have these kind of epic runs. Jason Mercier for a while too, just, you know, was playing a lot and just seemed like was winning everything going deep. And you look and there's so many key flips. There's so many key coolers or spots deep that you have to run well in. You know, how, how much do you believe in that where – like the skill versus luck aspect and, 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 you know, to win an 872 person field, no matter how good you are, of course, you got to have some luck. So, you know, tell me a bit on that. Like, what do you, what's your thought on, on how the luck for skill is and were you, were you just that much ahead of people or did you run looking back pretty well at that moment too? Or do you think you were just like really, really ahead of the curve? Well, I mean, regardless of how ahead of the curve you, you were not going to have a much more than maybe a one or 200% ROI. So yeah, I mean, I do think I was ahead of the curve to nowadays market just because everybody's so. But yeah, I mean, it still takes an insane amount of luck. It's like maybe I was expected to maybe winner in the field at the time, probably not. But I was the biggest in the field at the time. Um, what would I be expected to make? Like two, three hundred thousand, you know? Maybe I'll right. rooms if you think. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a bit, guys. Let me know if the connection, how it is. For me, it was a bit choppy the last couple of minutes, uh, but I can still hear you. It's just a little choppy. Yeah, maybe give us a little tour, walk around, go Blair Witch on us, and, and give us uh, a little uh, little action over there. But it, it was uh, it was it was great until we started talking about the live poker, and then it was, it was uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. After sports cards, Tom, it, it's, it wanted us to stay on sports cards. We go to poker and things. Uh, look at this place. What is this, a hotel? Where are we at? <laughs> no, it's a house, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's see. Let's see if uh, let's see if this connection is a little better. And let me know how yeah. it is. Guys. Uh, people people are getting a little choppy. They were saying, but Tom, uh, internet, Tim, Tom's internet. You know, we'll, we'll, he's got a he's got a great house, great store, great great career. His internet's a little suspect, but yeah, no, I mean, fortunate part of the, yeah, the internet's not the best. It's it's built really solid, but is the internet still sound or does it still seem kind of choppy or? There, here it does seem better actually. The second I can, right, better. let's try that. Yeah. yeah, we're just getting to the good stuff, Tom. We're about to we're about to go down memory lane here and, and see all. How dog all recently, right here. Oh wow! Let's introduce. Who is this? Yeah, this is Tessa. She's a mini Australian Shepherd. Very nice. Them big dog fan. That's nice. Good to have. Yeah. Good to have dog. Yeah. You need to have a dog during quarantine. You know. Yeah, so. gotta have gotta have some. Uh, you know, there, there's nothing like a dog. I growing up, I had a, my my wife's not she's not keen on the dog situation yet. But we'll uh, once my son starts asking for one, I don't think she'll. she'll yeah, uh, right now it's a, it's a no. Uh, all right, so Tom, you you ship it 827k. Sort of puts you in a new new stratosphere. But uh, tell me, what you were were you doing at this stage to to kind of already be a dominant player? You know, you're. Were you studying? Were you doing card runners? What was sort of your your way of of uh, processing information and becoming separating yourself early on as one of the elites? Yeah, I mean, back then it was much more. You have a certain friends who you who you just like talk poker with, where it's like, hey, I tried this thing out. Like, oh, I tried this out. This worked really well. And kind of just running different strategies by people because you figure back then there were no solvers. There was card runners was just coming around where it's like, oh, here's some tips for how you can play better. So. Yeah. The game was way different back then. It was much more, it's like, hey, I'm here with, it's like, here's my group of five friends. We're constantly sending hands constantly. And that's how. So I thought we had some strategies that at the time that were ahead of their time with like small sea betting and things like that. And then also just exploitive strategies in terms of how much you could get away with like really small three bets and four bets because people would play a shove or full strategy against it. So yeah, but it was much more in some ways it was like more pure back then and that, or I wouldn't even say more pure because that a weak way to view things, but more so the game was just different back then. It's like the skill set that was needed was, was a lot. And what, what would you say like the, the poker landscape now with uh, the solvers and just where it's at, what would you say the barrier to entry is and, and if someone wants to come in now what would be your advice like is like a mandatory to to sort of break into games do you need to do you need to do some of these coaching sites and, and work on solvers or you know, if you want to beat like one dollar two dollar at the casino and play like ten dollar tournaments online what would you say to somebody who's trying to get involved now because it is a lot different than it used to be i mean ultimately still it's like your base has to come from just experience where it's like okay you have to just put in a lot of volume, whether it be like, okay, you're going to start at play money and you're going to play a lot of volume at play money, or you're going to play dollar tournaments or one cent, two cent or two cent, five cent cash games. Cause you still have to have like a base that makes your game somewhat fluid versus like, Oh, I saw on the solver. Like it tells you, you should kind of play something this way or like, Oh, I watched this training video where they give you a strategy. Cause the problem is if you don't have, at some point, it's like you still have to, especially if you're trying to beat smaller games, you really just need to be able to hand read 
and you need to be able to kind of just like put players into different categories where it's like, oh, this type of player way under bluffs in this spot. So I should fold way more than like I'm supposed to, you know? So there are, so for small games, I don't think like solvers or anything like that are needed in order to beat them. But yeah, it's like just putting in volume and then watching some training videos, which has really been the recipe to getting better at non-high stakes for a long time. That is still going to be the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And what, and tell me a bit about, I know you're, you're, uh, I saw some notes, your dad is, was pretty supportive and wants to ask you for updates and such. What was your, what was your family just overall view when you, when you sort of got, when you, when you said you went to college, where did you go to school when you dropped out? Um, what happened was initially I was going to Seton Hall in New Jersey. And then after my freshman year, I transferred to a state school in Pennsylvania, Kutztown. I was kind of, cause I was commuting to Seton Hall and I had some money. And I just wanted to get out of my parents' house. So, mm-hmm. but I only, but then I dropped out of college um, midway through my junior year. One of those situations where it's like, oh, I'm going to take a semester off and then change my major to psychology and go from there. But, but yeah, I mean, I was fortunate in that my parents were like somewhat supportive right away. But then I also had success early on where it was difficult to like screw up my life too bad. Right. But were they, when you said, I am taking a semester off and then you said, oh, I'm playing poker and then I'm not coming back. Like, was, did they know you were playing a lot of poker and that was an option or was it kind of like out of nowhere? You were just like, Hey, by the way, I'm playing full-time poker. I'm not going back to school. How did you sort of present that to them? And, and how did they feel? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I just presented it to them. And it's like, Hey, I'm 20 years old. I have a couple hundred thousand dollars. Like I'm not that interested in this major I'm doing. I'm going to go to Vegas for six months. And then after that, it was like, okay, well, I don't think I'm going to go back to school. I won a bunch of money. Now I'm, now I'm turning 21. I have like $800,000. It's like, it's pretty easy to explain to to parents. It's like, Hey, I have this level of success. I've been responsible, but so my parents were fairly supportive and my dad definitely like enjoys following along and things like that. But it was certainly like easy for them to be supportive early on. Right. Yeah. You could, you could also, yeah, you could show them, you could, you could, they're, they're, you could show them your results and they saw now, I guess, and then you have the tournament scores and then it's just kind of, kind of game on. Uh, when did you, when did you know that that was going to be for sure full time? Was it right at this time? Like you took six months off, you, you didn't go back to college and you had some good results. Was this like, you were like, I'm doing this for a living or were you still like looking at maybe some other possibilities uh, of like a, a career? Yeah. So what happened there was, yeah, I, just, I was taking six months off. I moved into a house in Vegas with some friends uh, like Will Reynolds, who, you know, and then um, this kid, Adam Sequist. And then the other person was uh, Rich Lindecker, who uh, unfortunately passed last year. But um, yeah, so really just living with them and I had a good bit of success and I was fortunate enough to have a piece of Rich's action when he got second for 500,000 in like a 5k world series of poker event. So that definitely, um, that kind of like bought me more time, you know, it's like, Hey, I was going to go back, but I had a really successful stretch. So I'm going to, I'm going to take some more time off. Makes, makes a lot of sense. So yeah, you, uh, you were, yeah, unbelievable crew. You guys were, you know, kind of traveling the world, going around playing, doing what you love and, and being in Vegas. It is, uh, you know, I remember that those, those days and those are really great memories of, of poker being, in my opinion, the most fun. You know, it's like kind of exciting because you're not established yet. You're sort of figuring out if you can make it work. You have a lot of friends that are doing. Nope. Oh, we, yeah. No, yeah. This sound is much better, by the way. So we can hear you clearly, but yeah, they, these are, these are the ultimate, uh, you know, this is what it's all about. This is, this is really, 
the the journey and in, in the early on and just not you know figuring yeah. it all out and kind of doing doing something fun and and from there though what was uh at what point did you would you say to like go to the next level was there something that happened i see in 2012 this 100k you take down for 1.3 million uh was that was that another like milestone or at that point were you already playing a lot of 100ks and, and or was this like a, I mean, this is a million dollar score though yeah yeah that, that was a that was a milestone. I mean, really, really, there was this five-year period in Vegas where the tournaments were just unbelievable in terms of the quality of like the high roller scene and whatnot. So I'd say the big turning point was when the Aria high rollers first came about. Like it was something where it was almost all Vegas players or like American players, and the the ratio between professional players and recreationals was ridiculous where it might've been a 50, 50 split or something like that, that would be completely unheard of nowadays. So really I'd say that's probably when I was able to take to the next level, just because like, Hey, look at these tournaments. They're running 15 times a year. Like there's 30 or 40 high rollers a year in Vegas and the fields are all completely amazing. And most people don't know about them yet. So this was like pre poker go and the poker poker go studio. So that was really a fortunate time for me where it was just like a right place, right time thing where it's like, Hey, Carrie comes to everybody's like, Hey, we're going to start tournaments. We're going to do two 25 K's and a 50 K or a 25 K, a 50 K and a hundred K. And I mean, the fields were just unbelievable looking back and I was lucky and I was able to capitalize extremely well during that three or four year stretch. Yeah, it's got to be pretty fun too. Basically, Kerry, you know, similar. He's a guy. He's very successful in business. Has a very big passion in poker. Sort of probably like you, poker to cards. And he just decides yep. to plop the stadium in this this setting for like a playground for high rollers in your backyard. I mean, it's it's got to, and you're at the yeah right place, right time. Pretty cool. Yeah. Well, what do you think, Kerry Katz? Where does he fit into the the poker uh, hall of fame or poker? You know, the the trajectory of the game and the high rollers. I mean, he really has with poker go, you know, the building the poker go studio and, and uh, all, all the doing this, this whole, uh, you know, the whole production value of poker. How much do you think he's contributed to the, the growth of the game and what, and poker? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's definitely done a ton for it, especially on the high roller scene and all the work he's put into just like, Hey, getting these high rollers televised, bringing back high stakes cash games and things like that. I mean, I would say Kerry is likely, on his way towards the hall of fame. I mean, I don't necessarily fully know the, the requirements or like expectation for people, but it's like, if he has longevity in the game where he continues to grow it for the next handful of years, it'd be, it'd be hard to have an argument against him uh, being a poker hall of famer. His record's also ridiculous. I, I, I think Kerry's like one of the more, not, I don't even know if he's underrated anymore. Cause his, he just, I mean, great. You know, he's playing a lot of the short, not huge fields, but his he he has a ton of caches now. I mean, he's got to have like twenty million himself or fifteen. Oh, I'm sure, sure, way more than that, even yeah. Yeah, he's one of the and he and he he really does like take stuff down. Like he's uh you know the cat cat's out of the bag. Kerry knows how to play cards and knows how to play tournaments and and has a has a very good very good very very strong record. What uh what what do you think in tournaments though? What clicked for you? Because you know to to get from cash games. And you're winning yeah. cash games and then to figure out tournaments. What was your sort of, uh, you mentioned friends, you had a great group of friends and, and being yeah. able to bounce ideas, but what type of literature or content or studying were you doing to, to kind of sharpen your game specifically? Like the tools to get better were different back then. So a lot of, a lot of it was kind of looking at programs like ICMizer back then where you would be able to run ranges where it's like, okay, I think this person is opening 
this many, this percentage of pants. I think they're opening 30% of pants. I think they're only calling this percent. So because of that, I could like shove these hands or we're just like looking through hand ranges and it's like, okay, this person's opening way too much compared to what they're defending versus three bets. So it's really just doing back then kind of basic math because so much of tournament play five plus years ago was just exploitive play where it's like, okay, this person is extremely unbalanced. What can I do to take advantage of them? And you just do some like simple math and like look things over to improve. That's why nowadays, I mean, I'm not that driven to play or get better because I was always better at like the psychological side of things and like exploitive play versus like playing an extremely balanced style. Like you have to actually put in a ton of like study time and like solve for time. Right. Yeah. It's uh for sure. It's gotten the landscapes changed and definitely, definitely very, very competitive out there at the, at the highest, highest levels, which is uh for you, what's your most significant win? Your most, the one that means the most to you, uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, you obviously have some, a lot of seven figure and big scores here. Is there anyone that stands out as, as being special to you? I mean, I'd say the two biggest were likely the NAPT score. And then this recent party poker score, because the NAPT score, like years ago, that kind of propelled, like kicked career X player. And then our score, which happened, I mean, probably like almost 10 years later, the first uh, main event I won since then. And also that was during a period of time where my poker career was kind of winding down, where I was putting in a lot less volume, not playing regularly anymore. So it's kind of like those scores like bookended like my time as a as like a full-time live tournament player. For sure. And what, what do you, what is more enjoyable for you to win a, this 536 person 5k for about a million or taking down hundred K, you know, with 20, 30 entries or 25 K with 30, 40 entries. What do you do is more exciting? Or are they the same or what's, what's more? Uh, no, I mean, it's always going to be the main event, of course. Cause I mean, with the main event, when you, it's like at the time you're not thinking to yourself like, Oh, I'm running so good. Like, wow, I keep getting so lucky. You're thinking to yourself, Oh, I'm playing so well. Like I keep making all the right decisions, this and that. So when you're playing a field where, I mean, you just have to run so well to get all of the chips in a tournament where there's 500 entries. So, I mean, it's just hard to have a more enjoyable poker day than, I mean, poker, then you start a tournament with 30,000 chips and then five days later you have 15 million chips or something. You know, yeah, it's, so, pretty, it's pretty unbelievable. You can't really replicate the live tournament aspect of, uh, yeah, and just being the last one standing. It's pretty, pretty surreal to really think about what that means and and how that works. And um, yeah, I'd agree with you uh, that that is, uh, you know, small fields are fun and it's cool. It's bigger money and or less time, but the yeah, when you hit a, when you hit the five k five hundred plus person fields, it is it's pretty special to maneuver that that uh that full field um what about this this 5k the party poker one obviously COVID happened so this was the last one actually right this was 2019 they didn't have it this summer what this this is a pretty tough tough lineup down the stretch here a lot of a lot of names familiar names um really world-class players um what what uh what 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 was uh what kind of worked for you in this? Were you, did you have all the chips? I think we actually played in this for days briefly. What what was kind of like working for you in this tournament in particular? Um, Yeah. I mean, I stack going into the final couple tables and I know I won two flips where one time I had ace jack for sevens and the other time I had sevens versus ace jack and I won both of them. And then at the final table, I had a big chip lead, but then I remember moneymaker was second or third in chips Mm. and I raised and he three bet me from the small blind or something like that. 
and I pocket eights and the flop came down something like seven, five, two. And he bet and I called and I turned an eight and I mean, Kings. So, so I kind of just like coolered him for all the chips. So then at that point it might've been, I don't know when he went out, if he went out or something like that, but at that I might've had 70% of the chips with five left or that, you know, like a ridiculous thing. So a cruise from there. So one of, the, one of those just like dream stretches where your bluffs work, you win your all-ins pre-flop, you get there when you're behind, like all that stuff. And I mean, hey, that's what it takes to, to win a 500-person tournament, no matter how good you are compared to the field. And I mean, at that point, I mean, I might have been one of the better players, but I certainly wasn't anywhere near the best player in the field. For sure. And, and uh, give me, give me a bit of your playbook on, and just your experience been in the game for 15 plus years, roughly, you know, I think that's about yep. right. When did you start playing online? Was it, was it Oh, three or four? Um, Cause Oh, eight, oh, yeah. se- oh seven was your first. It looks like your first ever, I'm sorry. No, this was your, well, we can see your first ever cash live was 2010 actually. So uh, we'll yeah. playing before that. Yeah, I probably started. Yeah, I probably was playing seriously online in about 2005. Because by the time, because I remember going to Turning Stone Casino, which was kind of an epic place back then, because that's where a lot of, a lot of like the bigger players who were playing online back in the day would go there. Because the European Poker Tour was just becoming a thing. It was the place where it's like, hey, if you're an American player under 21, like this is where you would go to play poker live. So. So yeah, I was probably, I actually started off my career as a limit Holden player, the 17 or 18. So 14, I transferred, I transitioned into Holdem during my sophomore year of college. So that would have been, yeah, I would have been playing a Holdem first back in 2007. And, and what, based on your experience and your friends and, and seeing people that have, that have uh, done well, that have done well and then not done well, what do you think are the most important attributes uh, longevity for a poker player that you see, you know, cause it's not always the best player, the most talented that makes it, yeah. that makes it or, or does well. So what would be sort of some attributes that you just think is the winning formula to have, to, to be, to be really successful in poker? Um, I really think it's work ethic and just consistency because there's so many players through the years who have been amazing players for different stretches of time, but they've never, they never like capitalize has never been where on their best days they're amazing and then on their worst days they, they're not great so i would just say that it's like poker is something where if you're looking at it as a career your timeline for playing as a pro has to be at this stage 10 or 15 years or more because there isn't really this like get possibility anymore where it's like hey i'm gonna be in the game for five years i want to try to make three or four million then i'm going to transition to something else but that doesn't really exist so it's kind of like just be consistent, set goals more in terms of like volume and study and things like that versus winnings. And then the other thing that's really crushed a lot of poker players through time is it's like, Hey, you really just have to keep your spending intact and you have to have decent bankroll management. Cause I mean, how many people do we know who have final table demand and given it all back, whether it be spending a ton or gambling too big and things like that. So it's like, Hey, kind of know where you're at, gamble within your bankroll and try to keep your spending down because who knows if you're going to be making what you're making right now, five years from now. Yeah, no, it's great advice. And it's true. I mean, it's, uh, it, you know, bankroll management, game selection, discipline. There are of course, a lot of access to some bad habits, right? Like with the, being around casinos, betting, other 
it can happen. So I, I think that is uh, it's it's really easy to succumb to those. And yeah, I think that uh, you know it's it is it is cool to see guys be around for because we are from the same generation and, and seeing some yep. of the guys that are still doing it, whether it's full time, part time, or a combination of other things. I think that's the most seeing you segue have like this passion and, and get into business with sports cards, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's very cool. Cause like, that is also very important to have other supplemental income, diversify, you know, take away a little bit of the pressure from just the results of uh plane and, and seeing, you know, even, I think that's also hard when you're having so much success to sort of tone it back and, and, and walk, not walk away, but just diversify when things are good and maybe realize too, you've run well, you're doing well. And I want to try to parlay that into some other, uh, some other types of things. What do you think you would be doing if you weren't um, playing poker uh, or even like sports cards? What, what's some, what's some other type of hobby or maybe a job or something that you think you could, could do or industry that you would like to be in? You're basically doing it. You're doing what you like, right? You're yeah. Like- honestly, I don't really know. I mean, yeah, it's like, I, I enjoy, I mean, I just enjoy sports cards because it's something that before I got into it on the business side, like I enjoyed it as a hobby. And if you just look at my other hobbies, they're more of, things involving just like sports. Like I like to watch sports and things like that. So I'm not really sure how it transitioned that into a job, but yes, I don't really know where I've been at and I really, where I'd be at. And I don't really, I thought about it all that much just because I'm happy with my current place, but it's a good question. Probably something that I should, I should just think about in general. It's always... I don't think so. I think you're good. I think sports cards is uh, this could carry for this could just be the one for for a long time. Um, give me a couple of guys. I see you're on number two all time on the Jersey list. So you're from Jersey. Phil yep. Ivy, of course, it's got the got the number one spot. I mean, just just iconic in the game. Uh, you've got a pretty healthy lead on everyone else. I mean, a, a couple other legends on here uh, in that in that uh, top top spots. But um, is that something? Do you look at Hen and Mob? Do you, do you say, "Oh, I'm number this or this much earnings"? I want to do you have goals with that. Do you want to be the number one? I mean, you were the number one player ranked in the world, I believe. You're your card player of the year, I think, in 2010. Yeah. Um, so you've hit some of these milestones and achievements. Does this does this motivate you any of this stuff, or do you just not really care at all, or somewhere in between? Well, yeah, somewhere in between. But I try not to worry about it nowadays because one thing that. I think everybody struggles with, and I've struggled with a little bit as well, is that they compare their success to other people's. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that just isn't something that's really going to lead to any sort of happiness. So I've never, I mean, maybe at one stage I thought like, oh, maybe I'll be number one in the world in all time caches and things like that. And that's like a fun like goal. But at this stage, I know that's not realistic. I know I'm not going to be playing a ton of high rollers or live tournaments moving forward where I'm ever going to get there. But yeah, so I, at this point, I'm driven by by those things as much. When I play poker, I I play because I think I'm winning some money and because I'm enjoying it, not to compare my results to other people. Where it's especially where at this stage, if I compare my results to other people, my results aren't that great. It's really what it comes down to. Like if you look at it, what a lot of these top players are doing nowadays is, I mean, pretty unbelievable in terms of like the amount they've cashed for and things like that. Yeah. Tell me about the main event. You've got 14th here. Is that, is that your deepest run? I assume that's pretty free. Yeah, uh, what was that like? How is that different than some of the other ones? Cause I mean, that's sort of the ultimate dream winning the five K some of these main events for an NAPT, mm-hmm. the party poker million. They're cool. They're prestigious, but this is the one, like this is the one that yeah. everyone talks about ESPN, the coverage, like the, the, just the dream. How, how did this run? Uh, how was this for you? And what, 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 what experiences would you say that you, you took away from this tournament? Yeah, I mean, really, I'd say the main event's the only tournament where I ever played it 
And like people always say like, oh, it's such you figure the commentators will say like, oh, it's it's so grueling. It's 10 days of poker, this and that. And yeah, I'd say that I didn't even necessarily enjoy it that much because you're playing so many hours a day, so many days in a row. And also it is just a crazy amount of pressure because you're thinking like, oh, first million place is 10 million. Like, wow, we're playing for so much money. There's all the press around constantly. It's like, oh, if you final table, like what are all these things you have to do? You know? So it's one of those things where it's a little bit the moment worn down and there's so much like outside noise. So at least for me, I mean, it was fun to get deep and like have the, like the huge stacks of things like that. But in terms of actually like enjoying it as, as it goes, you have so little time to step back and be like, Oh, this is awesome. I'm the sixth or seventh day of the main event because you're literally getting there at noon, getting home at two. And then you have to turn around, fall asleep and get back there at noon the next day. You know, I mean, the way the main event is set up currently is certainly very difficult for older for like older competitors to like hang in there and play their A game throughout. For sure. The, uh, the, I'm looking at some of the names here. I actually forgot this. I didn't realize John Sin, who won a few years later, got 12 or got 11. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Uh, you do see some guys that just have so much. And there's Blesnick too, man. You guys get yeah. card shops, getting a lot of cards between the two of you going out. It's pretty crazy to go. See yeah, no, that was. Uh, it's gotta be, gotta be fun. How, was there any decision or hand you would do differently looking back in that spot? Like, was it a, did you have a lot of chips? Were you hanging on at the end or, or what was your, your bust out situation? Yeah. I mean, it, it was frustrating a little bit in hindsight, because I think with 18 people left, I might've been in, I was maybe fifth in chips, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, and ultimately I kind of, I got coolered for all of it by uh key who ended up winning, but I he raised preflop and blind versus blind, and I called with Jack Ten of clubs, and the flop came down nine eight two, two diamonds and a club, and he checked and he raised against me a few times previously, but in hindsight, I had a hand that I could have just like bet and I would have won the pot, and instead, we just like he just like backdoor flush over flush me, so. I actually do remember this now. I do remember this hand. I remember that that's that stands out at pretty sick. So I like the turn turns a club, he better and you called or something, and then the, the river the turn was like the five of clubs and he bet real small. And I thought like, oh, it seems like this guy might just have ace high or something. He's just like betting. So I actually raised him on the turn and then the river came. I remember on the river, it, it's like the board was nine eight two, the turn's a five of clubs and the river's a six of clubs and he checks. I'm just thinking like, wow, this is way too easy. You know, <laughs> like how are you going to just get there like this? But then, uh, yeah, he had to not flush. So, so what you bet big and he shipped it or I, I went all in and he, oh, uh, yeah, he, he all that. And was, Oh, wow. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, overall it's, uh, it, I was fortunate to go that deep, you know, I mean, you, you go that deep in the main event, it's practically the same as winning a normal tournament in terms of like a main event. I mean, I don't know what I cash for if it was 350 or 400 or something. So yeah, 430. No, uh, no big deal. That's a big, big score, big sweat and, and very got to be fun. I mean, to get down to two tables and, and be yeah. right there and can, can, uh, can taste it, but, uh, yeah, very cool. So that's, that's another big score. And what about, uh, what do you think about the current landscape of the high roller scene? You, you said you you know, you had the, the, the luxury of it's been in your backyard carry, with setting up with the poker go studio and a lot of at the aria you know having this great great tournament so often but what, what about the allure of traveling and and going around and playing it's just something that you're just not as interested 
anymore or do you see yourself could you be could you like the triton for example they have some big high rollers pretty cool locations you know i, I don't think you've made many of those trips or stops like yeah, that. I something that would interest you or just not really at the time you're just focused in your your, um, your yeah i mean i would there's definitely a few locations i enjoy traveling to i think the hard rock in florida is like one specific one i mean yeah. i think are you down there you're in florida that's yeah my home base is miami area and i i do that's like i'd spend probably a quarter of the year quarter to three three quarter okay. to a half of the year here so yeah it's awesome i they built that 1.5 billion dollar yeah exactly so i don't know if you've been there i was there for the opening of that that was that was amazing have you have you been to it yet no i mean you figure it kind of it was just opening in like October or something. And then yeah. yeah, Corona came around. So, so yeah, I mean, after COVID, especially after being like cooped up and not traveling as much, I would like to go down to there and maybe hit up one of these international stops. If it's, whether it's like Barcelona or whatever, one of the big party poker stops might be that's coming up. So yeah. I would like to travel a little bit more, but I doubt I go to something like Triton where it's much more like high roller themed where, Right. It's like edge if it even exists is in a lot of these high rollers at this stage. Well, I mean the the, the thing about the the Florida one too at the Hard Rock too, their twenty five k gets like literally I think three years in a row it's been like one hundred and sixteen or one hundred and seventeen entries on the dot, so it's like yeah. a pretty pretty big twenty five k. It's nice and then actually pretty good value. Um, so yeah, for sure that's that's a cool stop. Uh, what about PLO versus um, PLO versus Hold'em? What's your what do you prefer? I see you have some PLO scores and some deep runs in WSOPs and. 25Ks and 10Ks, uh, which game do you prefer? Um, yeah, I mean, at this stage, I probably prefer PLO just because I think it's a game where if you have okay funds of even just your preflop play, you can kind of feel your way around even when you haven't played in a while. It's like maybe your size is going to be a little bit off or things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I probably prefer – like when I play cash games online nowadays, I mostly play Omaha just because – I think I could jump in and be more competitive at reasonable stakes versus Hold'em where so many people have been studying and really know how to play every single spot. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think PLO is an especially good game for tournaments, so I still would lean Hold'em for tournaments. But then I think PLO for cash, especially if you're looking to get a little bit of a gamble in. And, I mean, that's obviously part of the reason why PLO cash games are so popular. Yes, and what do you think? Uh, what, what do you think about the short deck and these and mix games? Do you play short deck or any other mix games? Yeah, I don't play the. I don't play short deck. I mean, my problem with a bunch of these games that come out that are new is really what happens is it's like you're looking to create a game where then you you go ahead, you study it, you figure out how the game should be played, and then you get people to come in who haven't really studied the game, and you convince them like, oh, this is just like a gamble. Like, oh, that's real hard to have edges, this and that. And then you're kind of just like fleecing them. So that's the problem. It's like my understanding with short deck as an example is that short deck, it's like there's been for tournaments, there's been like push fold charts and things like that. And like push folds, like bots essentially and all these things time where it's like, okay, I have 30 antis. I have 40 antis. This is the pre-file strategy, you know? So the thing is, there's a lot of people who just have like a very firm... I mean, you figure it's a game where there's just fewer cards, so it's obviously going to be easier to solve. It's like, hey, there's fewer cards and the stacks are shorter. It's like, how hard is it to solve this game? So at least for me, I'm just not a fan of some of these newer games where they're so, oh, this is a great game for gambling, but really it's more of, it's like, hey, fleece new players who are transitioning over to it who are likely going to play spots either too tight or too loose in different situations. 
Right. Yeah. It's uh, it is interesting. I, I think short, you know, short deck does, it's gotten popularized. It's, it's got some, some attention and, and I, I think what your points are spot on on that too. It's like, it, it is, there is, of course there's skill. Of course there is the right solutions and plays and spots. And if you just kind of dive in and don't have any idea, you're going to be at a, at a, at a decent uh, disadvantage. Um, all right. Tell me, uh, we're going to, I want to get over to questions cause there's a, there's a ton of yeah. them, but yeah. uh, what, what about uh, looking back to, I mean, cause you know, it's interesting that you have almost $20 million in life, lifetimes earnings and you don't correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't have a WSOP a EPT or uh, WPT WSOP or EPT. I think you have some seconds and thirds. Is that right? I mean, you've won major events, but not one of those titles. Is that still true or no? Cause I know you were, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I figure I've won the, the party poker one and then APT, which are kind of like fringe, well, I mean, yeah, party, poker, it, party poker will be considered as a big one at this point, you know, but yeah, yeah no EPT or WPT or um, WSOP, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I would say the party series is kind of, kind of one of the staples now. I mean, that's like the triple crown technically, you know, and I guess EPT doesn't even exist. It's uh this championship events and whatnot. Yeah. But, um, what, what is, uh, I mean, your career is pretty, it is illustrious. It's, it's very, there's a lot of wins, a lot of big big moments what uh is there anyone that you feel like that there was like second i guess in the didn't you get second in the 10k uh wsop or what's your closest wsop finish um i got second in a 1500 parliament hold'em which mm. uh that one was i've had a few close calls in the wsop and that i mean that was the closest just in that i was all in ahead to have the majority of the chips and yeah it didn't didn't work out but i mean Fortunately, I've I've never been somebody where it's like, oh, I really need to win a bracelet or like, oh, I really want to win a WPT or things like that. I mean, right. it'd be fun to, but I mean, I can't say I've honestly ever like tried really hard to, you know, it's like I was in Vegas storing this World Series of Poker online and I played five events. So, right. It's like, I'd like, it'd be cool to win one, but it's like, hey, how hard am I trying? It's like, I don't think I've ever played more than 15 or 20 events in a year. So for sure. And, 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 uh, what do you believe on the, the, the online versus live? Do you think these, you know, the W that should count as bracelet events if you win online or shouldn't, or, or especially with COVID now, I mean, it's a bit of a bizarre year. So it's kind of nice to have like that, the, the tradition or there's like yeah. a history, going, but where do you, what, what's your, what's your stance on, on the, should there be an asterisk or should it count as a real one? It's, it's tough. It really is a balance between using a name as strong as the WSOP to grow poker and like, oh, here's a WSOP bracelet. So it's like that can really help you grow poker, but then also not taking it too far where the overall idea of a bracelet loses its prestige. So, yeah, I mean, if I truthfully had to say, it's, I would think they probably had a few too many events this year. But at the same time, I understand that this is a company that normally makes a ton of money off this WSOP brand and they weren't able to run any tournaments this year. So they're trying to capitalize off the name. I mean, I'm excited for this main event that's coming up Sunday here. It's hard not to be. It's a 10K that should be decent value and it'll be fun. Yeah, that is that is cool. Is that, is that day one A for that or B or is it is they, have they already done one? I know that's coming up for the, the I know they had the GG ones um, for the Europe version and now there's the... the I thought uh, it was just a one day tournament, but that shows how little I know. I just saw on the 13th, they're having some sort of a 10K on the... WSP for them. I think there was two starting days for two or three, even for the, uh, for the other one, but I'm, but maybe it is just, just one on there, but I know that is, that is coming up. So yeah, good luck. That, that'd be fun. There you get another redemption on online and yeah, for sure. I mean, that's going to be good content too, for poker, you know, regardless, it's like, Hey, it's going to be on ESPN. It's going to help to grow the game. They're WSOP.com or WSOP is throwing in a million dollar free roll for the two winners. I mean, 
they're doing their best to grow the game. So it's hard to complain too much when that's going on. Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree completely. Let's uh, before we dive into the questions, I just want to zoom through some of this, some of the memorabilia here uh, and talk a little Card. bit about some of the, some of your favorite cards or even just some of the value. Cause he's so like, let's just start right here. This is a, this is a pretty sweet looking to a, uh, card here what is what is a card like this is, and can you tell by looking at that if that what that would grade at roughly or is it too hard to say without like it's it's, it's too hard to say like um how it would grade but yeah these are all cards that are pulled by that um customers uh pulled out of packs and whatnot i don't really know the market that well on something like that from football but if i had to guess it might be it might be like a thousand dollar card Okay. And, yeah. and what about anything here that catches your eye? That's like a really special card. I mean, this one, you know, Steph, it's an autograph. What, what are some of the things people look at in, in cards? Like you, it's, it's signed, this is yeah. numbered. Like what are the key factors in, in the grading and, and value? Yeah. A lot of it's just like um, the player, if it's signed or not, how limited it is in terms of how many are made, the aesthetics, like that card, the other Curry with the trophy, as an example, like that's a very big card. Uh, um, right here. Yes. So that card is, I believe it either sold or the customer was offered 10,000 for it. Mm-hmm. So, cause this is, that's like a card where it's kind of a set came out where it's like signature moments of all these different players. So you could see like, there's the Charles Barkley, like a team USA picture with his, with the ball. Like that's just kind of viewed as like an iconic photo where there's a Vince Carter below it that um, that's a picture from the slam dunk contest. So a lot of it's, um, a lot of it's just like overall aesthetics and it just like how much people like the set and the player. Right. And then obviously like numbered here, this is only two, it's patch game, you know, game uh, four or five. So there's only five. This is probably worth more or these type of ones. Uh, yeah. I mean, it can, it can range, it can range a lot. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, I what I don't understand, I guess the question I'm trying to still understand is how the deals are done because like, let's just take, uh, you know, players in the NBA and who like Burroughs or these guys, like, is it, is, are they, is that just part of the contracts from the day of time with that, with that one sense cards were printed that the NFL NBA had deals with Panini and upper deck and these, these cards. Cause like, what is, or what does a player get, or does a player get, does a player have to agree? Like who are they actually signing with? Are they signing with the card company or is it part of their contract? Like who, you know, how does that work for the, for the signatures of uh, these cards and how like the process of printing them trying to understand. So what ends up happening is the company themselves, they buy the, they buy the, the license to print the cards with like the NBA names and player uniforms. What happens is they have to go to the individual players and come to a deal with them for like how much they're going to pay them for each autograph. So as an example, with somebody like Steph Curry, they might just pay Steph Curry $200 an autograph or a hundred dollars an autograph to sign while then a lesser player like um, JJ Redick or somebody like that, you know, he might get paid $5 an autograph to sign. So that's what ends up happening. They have all these individual deals with the different players in order to get their autographs. But so like you, you, you there literally could, so guys, yeah. I mean, you figure if you'd say it's $10 an autograph or 20 an autograph, yeah, it doesn't take that long. I forget that. I remember the numbers, how much it takes in an hour, like on average or you know, yeah. rattle them off. But so that, that would be, so not every player is, they're going to have uh, the just different deals, of course, on the, on the, on the company, but it's actually the, the company like upper deck will sign Jordan or LeBron to exclusives. Some guys do yeah. exclusives. And then from there they have their own deal worked out, but the NBA has a deal with 
the with the card companies, correct? To have like the to use their yeah to you to use like the name and likeness of all the current NBA players. So that's the thing. If somebody's retired, they actually have to go out and then pay in order to use their likeness. So like say they want to put Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in a product, they're like they're paying him some amount of money per year. It's like hey, we want to be able to use your picture and name in different products. Wow. This is a pretty unique card. You got different sports here. You got all the, you know, Pele. What, what's something like that go for? This is pretty unique. Probably not, that, probably not that much. I'm not sure exactly, but if I had to guess anywhere from like 400 to 600. Really? I would think that with the, the different like kind of legends of the game. Yeah. It's just a kind of random mix. And like Pete Rose isn't very popular in terms of like a Pete Rose autograph. You might be able to get it for 20 bucks on average. Right, he's uh, he was. I know he was at the in Vegas at the mall, right? Signing at one of those stores for a, for a, year yeah, for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, very cool. So, yeah, these are uh, this is this is all stuff like this is these are are most of these available for sale at your store? Or these were people's cards that they got or brought in, or or is this pretty much like at one point this is available for someone at your store? Um, it's, it's a mix. Like some of it is cards that we've bought off of different customers. Others are just that if somebody gets a really um, good card from one of our packs, we'll usually post it to our Instagram, something like that. So very cool. who would be a player too that you think are, are just like good, good value buys at this moment, whether rookies or a few years old, but just cards that if you see them, you should try to grab them. And you think that they've got a good, good, uh, good track record for moving forward. Um, I mean, I'd say, I'd say Kyrie Irving could have some good upside. I mean, he's in a, he's in a strong market and the East is pretty weak this year. So if Durant comes back looking good, I mean, the Nets could pretty easily make the finals. So I think Kyrie is somebody where there could be a spot for redemption. But, I mean, that's really what it is. It's like you're looking for a player who's an all-star level player who's on a team that could potentially win the championship, who's not that expensive. So, I mean, Kyrie, even like Durant, you know, if you want, if you think that Durant's going to be one of the best players in the world still, it's like you should buy more Durant cards. So, or if you think that the Clippers have a really good chance of winning the championship, then it's like, yeah, Kawhi and Paul George aren't that expensive right now compared to some of the other players. Like Kawhi, for example, is much, much cheaper than Curry. You think like, hey, Kawhi has another couple championships in him. It's like, hey, he's somebody who's worth buying. Right. Which is also why it is fun because there is the, the gamble aspect of it. You know, guys are going to, who's going to do well, who's not. And, and you know, you're kind of making some educated guesses. And uh, also the industry could just do well as a whole. And then it doesn't really matter. Um, it, in particular, but yeah, it's all supply and demand. That's really, that's really what it comes down to. Well, let's, uh, let's dive in to the, the Twitter streets again, guys, if you want to ask a question for Tom, it, we'll have a chance. We'll run through them. We're giving away $111 ticket courtesy of party poker. Uh, and, uh, we are going to go through and, uh, knock out some of these questions. You ready? Yep. Let's do it. So starting off here, what do you think about the future of online poker? We're hearing about RTA solvers, this type of thing. Uh, what, what do you think the, the future holds for online poker? Um, I think, I think high stakes poker is gradually shift more towards live where there's less risk with RTA and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think for smaller and mid stakes games for online poker is great. I mean, there's, as much demand as ever to, for people looking to play smaller stakes or like 10 to $50, things like that. And a lot of good providers who are doing that. I think the long run mid stakes, mid to low stakes is, I mean, I'd be pretty optimistic. For sure. And I, and what about live poker? Cause 
I'm, it seems like before COVID numbers were crazy guys. It feels like people are kind of itching, right? You see people still, even with the situation, the glasses up, people are going, tournaments are happening. Uh, the, the live poker market pre COVID was just flourishing. Well, and, and do you have any feeling like live poker has any, uh, well, any- I, think, I think it's going to be massive. Like I wouldn't be surprised if not this upcoming world series, but the one after that is like the biggest main event ever, you know? So we'll see. But I mean, yeah, I saw there were four tournaments at the win this past 10 case and they all got good fields and there was so much demand that they're doing them again this upcoming weekend so i think there's a ton of pent up, pent up demand and we're gonna see amazing numbers across the i'd agree with that what uh what's your favorite movie mm, i don't have one no, nothing jumps out um mm. favorite, favorite card in your collection we kind of went over this and and what about what about the great companies though psa versus uh bgs and beckett you know the bvgs and these do you just go strictly psa or do you do a mix of them um, I, I do a mix. I think uh, PSA is better for reselling, but then I think that Beckett is pretty good value to buy right now if you're going to hold on to the cards because the overall condition on a lot of cards is fairly similar, similar, and the price difference is like is massive between say a Beckett Gem Mint nine five versus a PSA Gem Mint ten. So, uh, can you explain that a little bit? What's the, what is the difference? Well, I mean a ten. On a lot of cards, like a 10 is selling for almost double a 9.5 or 75% more. And it's just because if you look at it, a lot of the biggest influencers really pushed PSA and the quality of PSA cards. So because of that, PSA has been kind of sold as like, this is like the investment grade to put your money into. So I think for the masses in the short term, they're mostly leaning PSA. But then for looking to like have a card and own it for 20 years, I don't know if PSA is for sure going to outperform Beckett long-term. I'd rather just pay less and have the card in a Beckett holder. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, what about uh, thoughts overall on the, the crypto market? Bitcoin uh, doing very well. Poker and, and crypto are tied together. Give me a, sort of your, your forecast. Are you uh, surprised at all? Did you think that when Bitcoin dropped down all the way to 3,000 from this roughly this peak right now, right? In April, I think it was December. Yeah. 2017 did you did, were you like oh wow that's weird bitcoin's dead did you just sort of believe it would it would come back and, and what's your sort of just crypto feelings in general landscape wise yeah i mean i've always been somebody who's owned some bitcoin and i'm i'm somewhat optimistic about it long term i mean i'm not certain if it's going to have this upside that a lot of people say like oh i think you go to 300,000 or things like that but i just see it as a gambler in terms of how easy it is for like settling debts and things like that where you do see in the gambling world like Bitcoin is something that's often is, is like the most common means of settlement at this stage. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm bullish Bitcoin in that with sports books and poker sites and just like overall gambling. And I mean, then also some things that are some like less desirable people who are using Bitcoin all the time. I think there is some sort of a use case for it, whether or not it's with mainstream adoption or not. I'm not sure, but I have like some amount of confidence that Bitcoin will at least at least hold some amount of value long-term. For sure. Uh, what about chess? This is a question from Marco, ghost of M. Um, he is, uh, he, he says that he believes you play a lot of chess. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but what's your, what's your thoughts on chess? Um, yeah, I, I don't play a lot of chess. I, I played a fair bit when I was, young and, uh, I was reasonable at it. I didn't, I didn't like go to any tournaments or, uh, play overly seriously, but just as a hobby. So, I mean, yeah, I enjoy chess as a game but the problem is it's something where 
you need to put some amount of time, like a decent amount of time into it to get a reasonable aptitude. And I just don't see myself like putting that amount of time into like chess versus if there's something I'd rather pick up, I'd rather try to pick up something like golf as like a leisure activity versus chess, which is kind of strenuous on your brain and not necessarily a relaxing thing. Right. Not to mention, you know, you have another, there's uh there's other games, like you said, poker, probably something you prefer at the, even at this point, just then playing a couple hours of chess, maybe just to play some more poker. I agree. Golf is uh golf's a golf's a hobby. I'm looking to kind of get better at myself. Do you, do you, do you shoot? Have you taken lessons? Do you play any golf? Um, I mean, I probably end up going to play a round or two per year just with friends or like if there's some sort of an event or a thing like that. But yeah, I tell myself every winter, like, Oh, this is the winter. Like let's get a coach, like hit some balls, things like that. So especially now, um, yeah, it's something I'd like to get into and I've been saying it for five years, but who knows, maybe this is the year. I'm, I'm, I'm basically identical as well on that. I, I just, I keep saying I'm going to spend really dig in, but I, I've taken a few lessons, just haven't quite got there. It's, these things are such for guys that are competitive that they love yeah. it. It's hard to just like casually hop in and just like mess around. It's like just so frustrating to be bad. So it's like, you know, exactly. you know that guy that's just getting blown out and just like, you know, clicking out there looking kind of silly and, and you know, yeah, that, that's the problem. And you figure so many of our friends are way ahead of us. Like so many people in poker, in the poker world are like reasonable golfers. So it's like, if you're going to go out there and hack it up and shoot over a hundred, I mean, that's not enjoyable. It seems like if you could get into shooting under a hundred where you're like an 18 handicap or something like that, you could at least go out there and have some fun. But it does seem like that takes a fair bit of work between like coaching and range time and uh, just getting out there and playing some rounds. Yeah. I think the way to do it is what, what would you say? Like realistically you shoot, I mean, do you even have a score? Are you like at the point where you're in like hunt mid hunt, like hundred, 110, 120. Yeah. I'd say when, when I go out and play rounds, it's like, yeah, if I get, it's like, if I get a bogey, it's like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. You know, like yeah, a bogey yeah. would be a bogey's practice. A bogey's probably equivalent to like a birdie, you know, for like right. a normal person. It's yeah. like, Oh, I got like three bogeys this round. Right. You know, yeah, but, or on the par three, if you get a shot at a birdie somehow, if you hit it, land it up there, and you can putt for you know, have a chance, like it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty pretty fun. You know, the way to do it, Tom, maybe not now because you know, we're busy, but uh, future future podcast guests and one of our both very good mutual friends, uh, Hook, he he's golfed, I've golfed yeah. him a little, I'd say we're all kind of in the same ability. Okay, yeah. We have some athleticism between all of us. Like we could figure it out. We, you know, thinking, like maybe we could, uh, maybe we could make a bet. I think that's the only way to get into it. Is I agree, some, yeah. some sort of something to, to, to shoot at, uh, maybe like a year long bet. We could, we could start at some point, you know, where we, we say like, all right, we're going to dig in and make some, some kind of fun thing. Cause other than that, I just, I don't see getting, uh, unfortunately I, I feel like we're at that point where we need a bet to, to make yeah, no, I agree. You just need a little nudge to get you going. And that, that could be it. You know, you just say, it's like, Hey, every amount that you are like worse than like an 18 handicap, you lose this much, you know? Cause I think that's probably a reasonable goal. Like you could try to get to an 18 handicap. Yeah. That's uh that's a good number. I think, yeah, then you can, you can get out and hang out. You know, you're not really hacking it too bad. You get off the, off the tee, uh, and, and, you know, you can get up and down now and again, that's, that's a, uh, that's a good reasonable goal. Let's, let's talk about, it. I think hook hook would be in hook likes to, he likes to, throw he, he loves the prop bet. Yeah. yeah like he's, he's obsessed at this point. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, well, let's do that. We'll arrange that. I think we could, uh, it hooks, hooks great to bet too. Cause he doesn't need much convincing. <laughs> we'll tell him like what the <laughs> yeah. bet is. Like, yeah, that's good. You know, like he's going to just, he'll, he'll be up for it. He's a good sport and we'll, uh, we'll figure it out. So that's, I think that's the way to go. Um, 
someone, people love this. Instead of asking what's the greatest hand, what's the biggest cooler? What's like the, that, that, I guess it was maybe the hand with Keen Win. I mean, that's pretty, pretty big one to get backdoor flushed, uh, you know, jack flush and, and situational. Is that one of your biggest coolers that you could, that you would say stands out for you? Yeah, that, that has to be it. I mean, in terms of like a huge, like shocker, like, wow, like what happened here? I mean, they have gotten cooler in some huge cash game pots, but then I've ended up chopping them, running it twice. So it's like when that happens, it's not that exciting, you know, but, but yeah, it's, I definitely say that flush over flush. What about, what about a fortunate hand? Like where you just like, you know, sick cooler where deep in a big one that you won, like where, you know, aces to Kings or set over set something big that just was for the moneymaker hand was big. It sounds like, but you know, where you turned a set and that eats to Kings, but anything that significantly stands out is like a big one. Yeah, one of the biggest for me was in super high roller bowl. It was a 500K at the time, the one that Rast ended up winning. Yeah. With on the final table bubble. So maybe there was 10 left. I got ace king versus ace king and one. Mm. So, I mean, that's, I feel like that, like really that's kind of the, the worst beat you could put on somebody, right? Like when you have the same exact hand and you just get the, the 2% free roll or whatever it is. So, yeah. Who was that against? Uh, Max Altergott. Hmm. Man, yeah, it's uh, those those are cool. Like, there's those are the ones you just want to be like, oh, let's chop or swap or something, and, and you know, like you just yeah. don't it's really gonna happen. And those like you play all the tournaments, and you know, there's not many bigger than 500k. So when it's uh, when it's that, it's it's kind of funny how variance is like with business investing or car, like all these things, because like tournaments, you know, the lowest tournaments, let's say you'll play over the last five years, right? You probably yeah. play. You know, some 500 or 1Ks online, maybe if it's like a WSOP event or, you know, live like a 2K or whatever, like at a WSOP. And then all of a sudden you're playing a 500K or you know, these million dollar, these size tournaments. Yeah. It's funny because like fundamentally you're playing the same game. It's the same thing. And you might win one or, you know, bubble one or or min cash one. And, and they're all just such different sizes. Uh, how, how do you sort of, how, how, how do you deal with that? Like gauging that? I mean, obviously it's just play your best at all times but like do you have any is that ever a problem where you like jump up or you're like oh i'm gonna play a 500k or 300k uh and and now i'm only gonna be playing 10ks mostly just because the nature of the game or you sell accordingly or swap or just do stuff to try to make that more balanced um at least for me the problem's never really been like playing bigger and struggling it's been when you move down then still playing your a game so yeah i mean i think a lot of times key decision making is just like hey I can afford to risk this much, but should I really risk this much where if I lose a hundred thousand in this tournament, I well in these 10 tournaments over the next two weeks, you know? So there's like some valuing just like your actual bankroll, but like your emotional bankroll. It's like, how much can you bear? Then you're not sacrificing like future EV every time you lose. So, I mean, that's something I kind of keep in mind, but for the most part, I've always been decent about jumping around stakes. For and sure. a big thing I'll say is it's like, Hey, if you know you're tilted and you know you just you're gonna play bad, it's like sometimes you just don't have to. You just decide you're not gonna play, and it's fine. Like it's not the end of the world. It's like you're better off not playing if you know you're gonna play your B or C game than just forcing volume. And and during a WSOP, looking back on your peak of summers of playing, what would you say? Were you more a volume guy? Was there summers where you would just wake up, roll out of bed, and and you'd play every single day, or did you like uh, like all right, I'm gonna play this 5K this. 3k 10k 50 25k and just focus on set events or did you just kind of like rip off whatever you could play yeah i i think the most events i ever played might have been 21 in a summer or something like that so i've never played a ton of events for me personally it's like the just the busyness of the rio and the crowds and 
like 10 handed tables is just like a little uncomfortable for me. So there's so many different places you could try to like play to make money during the world series. So I've generally leaned more towards like, Oh, I'm going to play cash from that play online or I'm just going to like take some days off to make sure I'm playing my A game. So I've never really been one of those people where it's like, okay, wake up. What's the tournament today? All right. Headed down there. Like I just I'm not really that way. Right. Um, there is a question here from uh, drill. He asks, what are your greatest strengths? I guess let's say let's take poker strengths. What do you think are your, your strongest attributes to your game? Um, I, I thought I was just good, really good at being consistent and kind of knowing my place in games. Like I would, I would generally know it's like, okay, these two people are clearly better than me. I'm going to do my best to like avoid them and not make, not make like marginal decisions versus them and things like that. So I think it was a mix of just like knowing my place and not having a huge ego in terms of like, Oh, I have to play the biggest stakes. I have to play this game because the biggest, even if I think the smaller game is better for me. And then just knowing when to quit. It's like so many people are the types where, Hey, they'll win, win, win. And then they have one day where they erase three months of profit. And I've always been one of those people where if I've never felt obligated to keep playing when I'm losing, it's like, Hey, I'm losing. I'm not playing that well. It's like, let's just call it a day before I get like stressed out until it's Right. Yeah, no, that's huge. It's, that's really hard. I think that's uh, a lot of people's um, just don't like to be stuck. You know, they, they're, they're, they're like playing live or online in a cash game. They can't walk away down or they just want to get they're chasing or if they're tired, yeah. or, you know, they just, it's uh, it's hard, right? Phil Locke, I coined this term up stuck. And that's also yeah. like you get stuck from your highest, most point and you want to get back to it. Or it's obviously if you could always leave at your highest point, uh, that would be, that'd be a nice superpower, but not the case. So, um, you know, yeah, for sure. I think that I, I would say just based on what I know of you from your game and how you carry yourself, I think those are true and for sure a very, very valuable strength. Uh, what about a favorite player like growing up or people that you just kind of look up to and poker, like, you know, from TV or whatever, just someone you, you saw poker early on and you're like, wow, this guy, I really like how they play. I like how they carry themselves. Anyone that stands out for you? Uh, I mean, I think really for everybody, it was, it was kind of like Negreanu and Ivy and, and Gus Hansen early on. Like I always thought it was kind of awesome how Gus Hansen, his demeanor was always really good. He winning or losing, like he always just like took it fine. And like the way he was able to like give action and whatnot. And then you figured Ivy when we were in it at the start, it's like, wow, this guy's the sickest ever. His reads are unbelievable. Things like that. So at least for me, like growing up when I was getting into the game, it's like, wow, Gus Hansen, Ivy, and then like Negreanu who just had an overall demeanor and way about him. That was great for marketing the game. I think those three were always the players where I was like, wow, like this is right. This is like, I'm um, great for the game. Like these are like people that it's easy to be a fan of. For sure. Speaking of Negreanu, him and Polk, they've got a pretty uh, epic heads up battle going on and, and Doug's off to a fast start. A lot of people sort of uh, debating the line. You know, I saw four and five to one was sort of the, the consensus of people actually getting down on various sites and people betting. Uh, what's your thoughts on the real line? What do you think the the line is? What, what did you think it was before? And has that changed since you've seen some of this? I don't know, what are they, 20% through or so or? Uh, I mean, I bet a fair amount on it with a, a mutual friends, friend of ours. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I bet on Doug and yeah, I, I just kind of ran the math on it. Cause you could put this type of thing in variance calculators and look, and it's like, ah, the way to ground plays, it's going to be lower variance than a lot of these matches. So the standard deviation is not going to be as high as people think. And I think the win rate's high. So yeah, I mean, I bet it at four to one and I thought that, Doug could be anywhere from like an eight to one to like a 40 to one favorite 
based off of how big his edge is. But yeah, I mean, at this point, it just seems it seems like Daniel just isn't really where he needs to be to win the match. But I mean, maybe that could change. A good. It's kind of like we were talking about previously. The idea of where I'm saying it's like, hey, you have to put in volume just to gain some like fluidity and be able to like play poker. And when you watch Daniel play heads up, it just appears to be a very learned style, where it's like it's not fluid. You're not you're not seeing him just like make different plays, like make exploits, do different things, just like mix it up. So I think when that happens, it's like people just end up missing a lot of spots. And I mean, I don't know. His frequencies just seem like low. So. Yeah, I mean, I think Doug at this stage is a pretty massive favorite. Right. Yeah, I think that's all. It's all. It's also kind of hard for people to process all that, and and there's sort of like old school, new school, and people just you know, there's so many people that casually know poker. So like yeah. when you hear on the Granu, even guys like Helmuth, who was just recently on the podcast, you know, a mutual friend of ours and guy guy we know well. They, they just like, oh, like Daniel's a world-class player. He's one of the number one all time or was number one all time. And he's a smart guy. He can, <clears throat> he can pick it up, but it's not, it doesn't really work like that. It's just like a different thing. It's like Doug is like the head, like you said, the repetitions. He's played so much yeah. multiple tables at a time. This is like his bread and butter. And it's not just something that you can just like, you know, you just like figure out or get told a couple things and you just get to apply it. So I, I, I think, you know, I, I think it's kind of tricky to figure out that, that exact number, but you just got to believe he is over that many hands too. This isn't like a thousand cool. hands or thousand hands, like 25,000 is it's a fair amount of hands, you know, for there to sort of be a clear things to shake themselves out. So um, yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah. that's, that's very interesting. Uh, okay. So a lot of great questions. We'll take a, we'll take a bit more. I know Tom, uh, we're, we are, we've already, there's a lot. I mean, this is again, yeah. Tom, Tom can see on here and maybe, you know, they, I think uh, there is Twitter for, he's got uh, his, his Twitter uh, on the sports card and also on, on the, the, the Instagram. Is there any other social media? So you have the website legacy sports cards, which location is moving, um, which you yeah. mentioned that earlier where that is now, where it's going. We also show here, you guys, this is, and this is the main place for your, account. Yeah, we, we have an Instagram and a Twitter as well. I think I don't, I don't run the account. So I'd, I'd say Instagram and the website are our best uh, landing pages. And yeah, then me personally, it's like, I don't even know what happened. I didn't use my Twitter account for a while. And yeah. then I walked to log in one day and the login just didn't work. It's like my Twitter account was just gone. That is uh that, yeah, no, that, I mean, listen, I, did, I didn't have access to the recovery email anymore. So I was like, Oh, I guess a um, big cheese poker is just dead. I did see that. I saw there was big cheese poker and then it wasn't there. That's what I was asking you. Cause I, I, for, I, thought, I remember seeing you had it. Yeah, I didn't even know what happened. Like I just, I took a break from social media overall. I just thought it was something that wasn't great for me. And then yeah, sometime around the big beginning of COVID, I was like, Hey, like, um, I'll just like get back on here, like read some stuff. And then I couldn't get in. And then I looked and they said like my account was suspended and I like didn't know what was going on. I mean, I don't think I posted anything. I probably didn't post for three years. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's, you, you may be, I guess now that you're looking back on it, it might be just a blessing, right? Social media is cool. It's fun. It's interesting, but it's a sort of time suck and, you know, it can get you uh, down a rabbit hole as well. So how, how does that feel to just kind of be off of it? Is it almost refreshing and relaxing or? Well, I mean, that's the thing Then I just, I just made one that I just follow people on. That's like an anonymous account. Don't really right. post just like follow. Cause I mean, Twitter is a good place for overall information, whether it's about like COVID or sports or things like that. So, but yeah, I mean, for it's like, yeah, I just thought I was spending too much time on social media and some of like the negativity of social media, even if it's like 90% positive and 10% negative, like that 10% negative was just having 
too poor of an impact on like my overall day to day. So I just decided it wasn't for me. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Tell me, tell me about your COVID overall. How was, uh, how do you feel like it's gone for you in terms of focus? Like the, the change much, I guess you were kind of in your zone anyway, so maybe it didn't impact too much, but the, how have you felt like this last eight, nine months has gone in terms of productivity and just in general, like um, how's it's, it? it's been good. I mean, I've been fortunate that I don't, I mean, you figure I have a lot of family in New Jersey has been hit very hard by it, but I've been fortunate that I don't directly know anybody who's gotten extremely sick or died from it. And yeah, for me, I mean, my COVID stretch has been fine. I mean, there was the few months of uncertainty at the start where you really don't know what's going on, like how much risk our age at. But then now at the time I was living on the strip in a condo, uh, and yeah, a few, like a few months in, I moved into a house off the strip. So I mean, it's nicer just being in a house, like having that space. And yeah, I've been fortunate to have the the card business where that's been able to like keep me busy door- throughout it. Yeah, it's uh, uh, that that is that is got to be a fun. I mean, it's it's one of those things too. Like the hobby, I, I guess you know, with the store, how has that impacted though? With that, are people going in, or do you have like a limit to who can go in the store? What's it like for your your actual store there? Yeah, so you figure for there was a three or so month stretch where we were. Um, only online or then we would do curbside so you could call in an order and pay over the phone and then like pick it up so we did that at first and then now for the last i guess probably four months the store is open we have a limit on how many people could go into the store we do our best to distance unfortunately there haven't been any uh, outbreaks in the store with any of the employees or customers so we're definitely doing our best but i mean it's that side of it is stressful you know it's like it's always on your mind like hey are we doing the right things? Like, are we making sure everybody's wearing their masks correctly? Things like that. So we'll see how the next stretch is. Cause I mean, Nevada is in very bad shape right now. Is that, is it, what is the overall, like, what is the, the, the current state of the, the message there? Like, what's the, what are they saying? Like, are they telling you that you can go, I mean, the casinos, there's capacity, people are in their restaurants, like overall though, what is, what is, what are they saying there? Um, Really, and the issue with Vegas is like currently nothing's closed down. I mean, there's reduced occupancy on like restaurants and bars and places like that. And I think we have reduced occupancy as well. I think we're supposed to be at 25%. But the thing is, if you look at actual occupancy in a store, it's like the allowable occupancy in our store might be like 60 people, but we were still limiting it to like three customers, like throughout the whole thing. Everybody else waits outside. So, but yeah, the big issue with Vegas is so much of the money for Nevada and Vegas, especially just comes from the casino industry. So it's very difficult to regulate the, the local businesses and restaurants without just shutting down the casinos. Cause it's so obvious that like the casinos and the bars and, and restaurants within the casinos are going to be the main cause of the spreading. So, I mean, for the most part, Vegas is just wide open. So like you have to wear a mask, like you should distance, but everything's open. Right. Yeah. Makes uh makes a lot of sense. So when asking about your favorite site to play on currently, I guess not really playing a lot online or there's not a lot of options where you are, but what about uh, overall, like, I guess in the heyday, what would you say your most volume was online? Uh, your favorite sites to play? That's the thing back then. So we're talking like pre black Friday. It's like my, most of my volume was on poker stars because it was really just poker stars and full tilt in the market back then. And I had a preference for poker star software, but nowadays, I mean, I play, I do play a bit here and there on WSOP.com and, I will play on ACR occasionally. I mean, it's it's the best site as far as like US facing currently. But right. yeah. the overall, I think my volume has been pretty limited over the last few months. I think everybody was 
super excited for online poker at first and then you play like super high volume for a stretch of time and sometimes you just need a break like you get worn out yes absolutely do you have a do you have a nemesis like is there anyone in your career 10 years of playing high stakes or more and that you just like battle they seem to get the best to you they've coolered you they have your number like anyone you look at the table you almost like have to laugh or you're like man like this guy's just doesn't matter whether i'm better or whatever he just kind of kind of seems to come out on top do you have anyone that, that kind of is better like that for you or? it's one of those things where i never really like i never necessarily kept say, or even like just want to yeah right. But yeah, I mean, I remember like for the Aria high roller for a stretch. It's like I thought that um, I thought that like Zach Hyman and like Bill Klein, like those guys were just like getting the better of me. And I was always like, man, like this is these are the players I should potentially be doing a lot of my winning off of. Like what's going on here? Right. And um, I think it was just a lesson to be learned that hey, if you kind of underestimate a lot of these opponents, like I mean, they still have a little bit of they still have some moves, and like they could easily get the best of you, you know, doing some different things. For sure. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Especially in those, like when you're playing the 25 K 20 to 40 person fields a lot, you're probably going to bump into guys a lot. So, I mean, it's like, again, it's could be just a variance thing or what, not necessarily that you think they're better. Just like they, they always pip you or, you know, get there on you or just like, if, you know, I know you don't really think like that. Yeah. I mean, like I mean, a, in like my recent stretch, yeah, in my recent stretch where I like, I played, a, I played a lot less. I think I've, I feel like Ali always gets the best of me. Like I don't really, I don't know. He just comes across as like a better player who is just like putting in a lot of money and probably running hot, you know? So yeah, it's like, he's somebody in the, who the handful of times I've played with him, I feel like I've just like never won a hand off of him, but fortunately I'm not playing with him all that much. So. For sure. Is that uh is there any guys too, that, that kind of, kind of stand out right now? Like the, the younger generation, these guys, like you mentioned Ali, and is there some other guys you're just like, wow, they just seem to be crushing and getting deep and going, you know, just see them having a lot of success. Is there anyone that jumps out at you or sort of That's, hard in premise as it always is changing? And- yeah, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, cause you figure also it's like everybody always knows people who are like in their circle, in their circle or who are like just outside of their circle who are like doing well. So it's like, I know for me, it's like Sam Soverell and Jake, like those guys have done great over the last few years and are viewed as some of the best players. But outside of them, it's like, I just don't have any, I don't have enough knowledge to comment like, Oh, who's the best. Is it like Chidwick? Is it Jason Kuhn? Is it Ike? You know, it's like, there's so many great players who seemingly easily fall into the top 50 players, but it's like, I have no expertise to say it's like, Oh, this person's one of the top five while this person's like the 25th best player, you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's, it's true. Right. Yeah. Like any of those names you mentioned, they're not guys, you just know, like they're not going to be giving it away. Right. Like those guys, yeah. you know, they're, they're playing at a high, high level. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's just, it's just, those guys are crushers for sure. Um, which live or online, what do you prefer? I, I prefer uh live. I, I like the social aspect and like the fun at the table and like the overall camaraderie and like high roller fields, like talking to people on breaks and things like that. So I tend to just uh, prefer live at this stage. Right. Uh, what about sports? You basketball, what's your favorite to collect? Is it basketball? Yeah. My favorite to collect is basketball. That kind of just goes back to be like as a kid where I collected all basketball cards, but as far as a fan, I mean, I'm probably a bigger football fan than I am basketball fan, but Basketball um, and football are my two favorite sports. Uh, that, and, and is that, what about playing? Do you ever go hoop around or play any, any sports for fun? Uh, 
a, a little bit. I mean, nothing recently here. I got I got a pop a shot for my place a bit ago. Fun for just messing around. But but yeah, I mean, that's something I'd like to get into. It's just that like the group of friends I have who play basketball. I mean, they're they're very good, and then they're also they're extremely competitive. So I'm not. It sounds bad. It's like oh, I'm getting old. I don't want to uh, play these like high intensity games where like people are getting hurt all the time. Yeah, that's uh, the same because it's nice to be able to work out or do some light activities. If you get if you take a, a nasty injury or something silly doing stuff you shouldn't, it's uh, can set you back a lot. So I I know like uh, we're we're not young anymore, man. It's uh, I, I just want to avoid yeah. the unnecessary uh, stuff. Even when I go play like pickup soccer, the World Cup stuff during the summer, oh, I'm, yeah. always, I'm just like worried like something's gonna happen. I've been I hadn't really knock on one head uh, injuries like growing up, and then I just know like it's it wouldn't be fun to get like a nasty one right now. Um, yeah. Sure. And, that, and that's with you being like the best player too, or like one of the best players. So I feel like you're probably less likely to get injured first. If you're like one of the bad players where you might just injure somebody or like whatever. Um, yeah, there, but for sure. Like, I think there, there's also similar to the same thing, right? Experience. You kind of know like what's risky spots not to take, you know, it's for fun. Like I don't need to go in and try to tra- make a big tackle or, or try to like do something high risk. So there's, there's, there is some of that, but you know, at some point your body just changes and you know, you pull a hamstring or something that you're just not, a. I, I've had a couple of hamstring issues where I could feel it really close or tight. And it's like, man, this is, this is weird. Um, but no, it, it is fun. Uh, what's, uh, what's your, let's take a couple more and then we're going to let Tom time right off in the sunset. He's got cards. He's got things to do. He's got a store to run. We got to make sure we're not, you know, we're, we're already hovering around this two hour mark, but I want to, uh, I want to ask about favorite places you've traveled the world. You played the highest stakes. What are some cities you love the most to play? poker in and i guess yeah as uh both for the venues but also the cities in general um a surprising one that a lot of people don't seem to like that i always have just real fond memories of is actually the monte actually monte carlo like the monte carlo bay hotel there that was one of like the first like real nice stops i went to where it's like oh it like juts out into the water and everything's glorious and things like that and then i went for the million dollar amateur tournament like with a few friends. So I'd say like Monte Carlo is one of my favorites. And then I also used to like London when London had the WSOP Europe and like EPT London. I thought those were, that was just like a great stop just in that it's a fun city. That's like very livable where if you're going to spend like two, three weeks there, like there's a lot to do all different types of like a lot to see. So those are probably like the two most notable. And cause most of my experiences are either within the U S or Europe. Like I haven't really, I've only been over to Asia in a few places, never been to South America, never been to Australia. So I know like a lot of those locations are the ones that people tend to love. That's I, I agree with you. I, I really do agree that there's, those are some of the better cities. What about Montreal? Do you ever, do you, you've been there? Yeah, I went to Montreal. I like the city itself. It was just Montreal is one of those examples where just the casino being at the time, the casino at least was just like being outside the city but just made it a little bit more of like a, a less convenient stop. But like the city itself was great. Yeah. It's uh, it, it is, it is, it's a little bit outside there. Playground poker too. It's not technically in the city. It's close though. I mean, that's uh, yeah. Montreal, I think is one of the, one of the better stops. What's uh, what, which, which one you mentioned the hard rock, but is there anywhere coming up? Let's just say they turn everything back on COVID the vaccine. Things are back to normal. Is there one you're like, all right, you know, I, I, I'm missing live poker. You mentioned the hard rock, any other out of the country ones you might go to this year or any tours or stops, or are you just going to, kind of lay low and, and hit some of the, 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 the normal ones. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd like to do Australia. I've never done that. And it seems like you get to mix in the tennis. So that would be 
like a full year from now, which you hope they could have it next January, 2022. But yeah, I'd like to go to Australia. I feel like that's one where you could play a few tournaments, really just like see the city, enjoy the Australian open, things like that. And then I'd actually like to get down to Texas. Like when they start expanding a little bit more, because I mean, I saw some pictures of a new room that opened to Austin. It looked really nice. And I mean, I hear the games are good and I do have, uh, some friends down there. So it'd be nice to, to make it down there. Yeah. Austin's one of my favorite cities. I, I love going there and I, it's just, it's a cool place. A lot of people have been moving there in COVID and there's a, uh, yeah, I, I just, that's a great city. It, and that's, it'll be interesting to see if they actually get like tournaments and, and get sort of a, like a series there, I guess. I don't think the WPTs ever had something there. Have they? Or in, in Texas? No, I don't, I don't think there's ever been like a big tournament, but more so it seems like they do have a cash game, like a, kind of flourishing like a cash game environment. So wouldn't mind seeing it for, for that. And I'd imagine they can't be that far off from tournament from like bigger tournaments, just the way things are trending down there. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree completely. Uh, what is, uh, what do you think if you were an operator such as party poker or um, any, any major operator, like what would be something you think that you could do to make, poker better like what what are is it you know there, there's no huds now in party poker there's real names what do you think of these type of things and do you think that this is good for poker bad or do you not have an opinion yeah no i mean i think uh i think the no huds especially is um really good or some sort of like a limited hud that's like built in that everybody could use just because it's so difficult for players who are playing recreationally as is it's like it helps level the playing field a bit but yeah otherwise i'd say I just think I think there should be more freeze outs with structures that aren't overly long. Like they aren't turbos, but they're not deep stack. Because one thing, unfortunately, we've seen in online poker is really a trend. And party poker might be going away from this. I haven't followed closely, but a trend towards these tournaments that take an extremely long time and they have registration open for so long. The thing is, it's like most people, they want to hit the money in an online tournament within three and a half hours or within four hours. Like if they're winning a tournament that has 500 people in it, I feel like they don't want it to take much more than like seven hours. So that's kind of one thing I'd like to see, just like more freeze outs, a bit faster. And yeah, just like a, just like a trend away from re-entries because the re-entries do make for big problems, but they don't make for great sustainability. Yeah, I think it's a great, it's a really good point. And, and, you know, the, the live reentry stuff, like maybe one or whatever, but like seeing like Alex Fox and being six times at the Bellagio 10 K, it's kind of crazy for a couple of reasons for people. It's a little intimidating to have to think like, Oh, what? Cause like you go and play a 10 K it's almost like if you bust and you don't reenter, you, you know, some people you're almost like feel obligated to reenter. It starts getting expensive. You're in for a 10 K for 30, 40 K. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Not to mention you buck, bust Fox or yourself, and then you're at the registration line. Um, it's uh, you know, it's not it's not so fun to see you back on again. I think we actually might have lost Tom for a second. Um, Wait, really? Oh, now I got you. I can see you now. You froze for a second, but uh, can you hear me? Can you hear oh me yeah, no, I, I can see you the whole time. But okay, okay. yeah, I, you froze for a sec. But this, my point is like, if if I knock you out and then I you pop in and then the, you know three hours later or the next day you're at the table again and I got to beat you again, it's pretty pretty demoralizing. You know, imagine Fox and you knock him out twice or once and you see him again and again and all of a sudden day three he's got he's got the chip lead on your left it's sort of uh like man you know like here we go again uh it's a it's a bit it's a bit a bit intimidating um but yeah I mean, it, 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 there's there's the pluses and minuses for sure and at the same time though, 
a lot of people that are in for a lot of buy-ins and they never cash. So you look at a guy who's in six times and wins, you know, he did, but there's all the people that they were in for a bunch and didn't cash or whatever. So that added to the prize pool. So it's kind of a, it's just a, it's just a tough line. Yeah, it goes both. I mean, one thing I see for live stops is like, you'd like to see better side events everywhere in Europe and outside the U S they seem to do it well, but in American stops, there's so few, there's like so few worthwhile side events always. And I think like slapping some guarantees on side events and things like that would do a lot for it. Cause you look at it, like Bellagio, I mean, they try a little bit, but like say Aria has a 10 K tournament that it's just like the Aria summer 10 K or whatever. I had to put like a 2,500 with it or a 3 K and make those re-entry and then have the 10 K be a freeze out and kind of the best of both worlds for people. I think that's a great idea. I think uh, we'll, we'll push that in front of Rob and party and, and, and suggest some of that. Cause I do think, you know, some of these sites are more open to doing and trying things and listening and, and really taking a chance. So I, I think that that type of stuff would uh, make a lot of sense. All right. Well, Tom, this is uh this has been a treat again, legacy sports cards. I do. I appreciate the time, man. This has been, this has really been awesome. And, Look, look at this stuff. If you guys are in Vegas, go check out the, the store one more time. Tom, tell, tell us where it is and when it will be uh, moving to when. Um, it's it's currently located. It's on Sahara, about five miles west of the Strip. The address is eighty one twenty five West Sahara. So if, if anybody's coming in for the main event this weekend and wants to check it out, we're open from eleven to six every day. And then yeah, in late February or early March, we'll be moving to the new location, which is just five, six miles west of the Rio. So hopefully um, things will be back to normal for the World Series of Poker this upcoming summer and everyone can check out the shop. Yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm, I can't believe I didn't go. I mean, I kind of went because I got a, I got a mini version at your, uh, Yeah, at your, I got to see some of your stuff, but I didn't get to go to the store. So I, I will, I'm making sure I come by uh, next time to do that. I'm going to, I'll check out, hopefully, I guess I'll be the new location most likely uh, at that point. So that'll be cool. And again, we're gonna give away a $111 ticket right now. I'm going to go ahead and take this and we'll let Tom tell us when to roll this. So uh, you tell me when. All right. Yeah, you can roll it. All right. We're going to fetch this data. Actually, there's a couple steps here. This is a wow. new new tool for this is my buddy dnp3 austin from uh, grid gaming he does this he made this for the retweet it's a little more elaborate a little a little crazier so let's uh let's there's a couple steps here but this is what's going on we're gonna pick one winner uh create contest i am sure and, yeah this is serious business going here download retweets this is this used to be one click thing this is like a the whole yeah. product a lot of, lot of engagement here, Tom. We might have close to the course record. We have, uh, we, we look at all this. This is all the people eligible to, to win right here. So we've got 13 pages of 10, like uh, 124 entries. So someone, it's, it's not a bad, it's about a dollar in equity per, per tweet. And then someone's going to get it. So one more time, you tell me when I'm going to choose it. All right. Yeah. Choose now. Choose now. I'm sure. And drawing board, please wait while we choose. Someone's going to win this 111 one shot. Uh, any other, any other statement? You're going to play the 10K main. This is on Sunday. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'll be playing the 10K main Sunday. And uh, yeah, hopefully I found a table and then everyone could just follow me on TV in a couple of weeks. I, 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 that would be pretty, pretty sweet. We got Lucas Leonardo V2 has won. So I'll send him a direct message right here. He won the $111 one shot. My man hit the retweet. He got it done. We appreciate that. And uh, how about, is there any, are you, is there any action available, Tom, in the 10? I know you wouldn't sell, but maybe I could, could I buy, could I buy a percent for the uh, giveaway for the show? Like 1% sweat for, for here? Yeah. Could I buy it? 
Yeah, you could just take one. Yeah, just take one percent, uh, just for nothing, and yeah, we'll see how it goes. Wow, one percent. I think, guys, I'm, I'm. I really believe Tom's gonna win. I'm gonna give half to the stream. I'm gonna. I'm gonna lock up. <laughs> For uh, myself, man, I can't, I can't, I'll come fly out. How about that? If you make it, I'll, I'll figure a way to get to Vegas and we'll, we'll rep it. Uh, we'll rep it there. So we got a half percent to the stream. I'm claiming half. That's, that's hard to get a 1% main event. Marchese is not easy. And that could be, that could be a real big bink. So you heard it here first. That's book. We'll figure out a way to give that away. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens uh, after he gets in. So let us know how you do and give Tom a follow across the different sites for, I guess, you know, he doesn't have it. He's got the main one you guys want to follow is Legacy Sports Cards on uh, Instagram. And, and you also have a Twitter, the same one, Legacy Sports um, Las Vegas. So anything else, Tom? Any closing words besides you're going to be the main event champ still? Uh, no, nah, man, it's always good to catch up. And, yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it, guys. That's the man, the myth, Tom Marchese, number 109. We got Christian Harder later today, a doubleheader. One, oh, wow. One, yeah, two in a day, man. It's not easy. You know, we're trying, we got to make moves. To, you know, it's, time to, it's time to press. We're doing a second one, 7.30 p.m. tonight. We'll be on for that. And, Tom, good luck in the main event. Good luck the rest of the way. And I will see you on uh, Sports Cards. I might, I'm going to have to talk licensing. I was thinking about opening a brick and mortar once I get back to Miami and get things situated. I would like to, in the future, I'm looking at maybe doing a store. I know it's a lot of work, though. I don't know if I'm ready for it, but uh, I might have to pick your brain. Maybe you could partner you and Blesnick. We could figure something out. Maybe have a have a uh, a secondary store and, and figure that out in uh, Miami. I feel like Miami like design district. It would, it would be, be great for it. Yeah. yeah, if you get curious about it, of course we'll discuss. So yes, for sure. Cool man. All right, Tom. Enjoy your day. Best of luck in the main. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks a lot. All right, guys, that was Tom Marchese, known as King of Cards. He is $19 million in earnings. He's one of the all-time leaders, one of the best, brightest, and a great guy. I've known him for many years, and we uh, we really wish him the best, as always. And again, he just gave 1% to the Flow Show for the main event. So we'll be sweating him, and we'll let you know how it goes. So uh, check on that, and we'll see, see Tom at the tables. Thanks for listening to this episode. It was brought to you in partnership with Party Poker. Go to PartyPoker.com to play tournaments, cash games, and improve your poker game. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear all of my future episodes.